You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Will everyone in the theater hold on firmly to his seat, please? I think you're making a mistake. I think you really want to talk to me. Sorry, I have three other interviews to do before this party's over. Yeah, but they're not working on something that'll change the world as we know it. They say they are. Yeah, but they're lying. There is a limit, even to the imagination. Human teleportation, molecular decimation, breakdown, and reformation is inherently purging. Where our greatest creations meet our deepest fears. Something went wrong, Seth. When you went through, something went wrong. You are about to go beyond that limit. hairs that were growing out of your back, I had them analyzed. But they were definitely not human. If you saw how scared and angry and desperate he is... I'm sure Typhoid Mary was a very nice person, too, when you saw her socially. No! You're afraid to be destroyed and recreated, aren't you? You're changing, Seth. Everything about you is changing. Oh, no. What's happening to me? Am I dying? I want to know what's going on. What does the disease want? Wants to turn me into something else. Oh no. A fly got into the transmitter pipe with me that first time when I was alone. Don't go back to it. It could be contagious. Uh, I'm afraid! Don't be afraid! No. Be afraid. Be very afraid. unfair at this time to show you any more of what went on in that laboratory where a man actually dared to play God. So fantastic words can't begin to describe it. You must see it with your own eyes to believe it. When the fly comes your way, watch out for it. It's far beyond anything your mind could ever conceive. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Sam Deegan. Hello. Also back with me is Mr. Bill Ackerman. Hey, how's it going? On this special episode of the Projection Booth, we're looking at David Cronenberg's The Fly. Released in 1986, the film stars Jeff Goldblum as scientist Seth Brundle, a man who meets journalist Veronica Quaife, played by Gina Davis. The film tells the tale of their relationship as they get together and become driven apart after an accident changes Brundle irreparably. And we're going to be getting the spoilers about this film, its sequel, and its predecessors, maybe, so you have been warned. Now, Sam, when was the first time you saw The Fly, and what did you think? If memory serves me correctly, I think this was the first Cronenberg film I saw when I was probably 14, 15, because my dad was really into not horror in general, but really into certain things like loved John Carpenter, loved some of those Stuart Gordon movies. So he had kind of like this sort of unwritten list of things that he would make me watch when he thought that I was, I guess, maybe old enough not to be horrified by it. And 
this, I just instantly fell in love. I mean, it's, I love Cronenberg and I think it was a perfect introduction. How about you, Bill? So I'd seen the, uh, the Vincent Price fly like when I was nine or 10, I guess. And so, when the Cronenberg version came out, I was initially, um, I think I was maybe nine or 10 when the, the remake came out and I was a little bit scared to see it. I remember seeing, uh, ads for it, but I, I think I was like, uh, just afraid to, I would get nightmares from it. I was a real squeamish kid when it came to gory horror movies. And so I didn't actually see it until I think probably like 17 or 18. I think when I was already, uh, into David Cronenberg, I had already seen The Brood and Dead Ringers, Videodrome. So I came to it already like a budding Cronenberg aficionado. Um, and I really liked it. I thought it was really entertaining. I was surprised at how much actual monster mayhem there was. I think I was expecting it to be more of a, a horror movie, like what, you know, we expect from maybe like similar to what the, uh, the second fly is like. Um, but I really liked it. I was surprised just like how thoughtful it was because I knew it was a big blockbuster in terms of like compared to the other Cronenberg films that I thought it was. I was surprised at how much it was still just as thoughtful and just as grim as, uh, things like Videodrome and The Brood. So, uh, yeah, but I liked it. I saw this one at the theater when I was. 14, I guess it was. So about the same age, uh, but a little bit different circumstances than you, uh, Sam. Uh, went to see this one with my mom and one of my junior high friends, Corey Brandis, and absolutely loved it. I had seen bits of the original fly. I probably saw the whole movie, but of course I only remember the two really standout moments of that film. The removal of the shroud over the fly's head and the wife's reaction and then of course the help me help me at the very end that's pretty much i mean that's pretty much a whole movie right no <laughs> <laughs> no this uh, this makes me so upset because people make fun of the original so much and i really love it i mean if anybody listening hasn't seen it it's not it's not this, like, it has campy moments for sure, but the first, like, hour of it is basically this really grim, like, murder mystery where you're trying to find out, you're sort of following this detective character and you're following Vincent Price, who's the scientist's brother, and you're trying to find out why this woman murdered her husband by crushing him to death in a drill press. Like, it's so good. And the detective played, I believe, by Herbert... Marshall, who we just talked about recently on the Trouble in Paradise episode. I feel like Herbert Marshall is not really that campy in it. He's pretty serious. And I mean, there there are those great stories about how he and Vincent Price would like crack each other up between takes and, you know, had a good time together. But I feel like they take the movie pretty seriously. I do remember the sequel, the second one, what was that? The Return of the Fly. And that moment of the guinea pig with the human hands, that freaked me the fuck out when I was a kid. I saw, I should say, I saw Cronenberg's The Fly and the original Fly and Return of the Fly in like probably a year, two year period. Because I think, I want to say like Turner Classic Movies or somebody did this like run of Vincent Price movies for Halloween. So I was able to see them on TV. That sequence with the guinea pig with the human hands reminds me so much of this Lovecraft story, uh, dreams in the witch house where there's a rat with human hands, which just the idea kind of gives me nightmares. 
It's terrifying. Totally understandable. I think this might have been my first Cronenberg as well. I don't remember when I saw The Dead Zone. I had seen bits of scanners in that compilation movie, Terror in the Isles. Every once in a while, I'll be watching a movie. I'll be like, oh, I've seen this bit before. This is from Terror in the Isles. And for the longest time, I used to get scanners and the Fury mixed up because of the telekinesis stuff. I don't know what it was about the 1970s and telekinesis, but it was, I mean, a lot of pseudosciences were really embraced, especially in movies, especially in horror movies. And those two films, I think, would make a fantastic double feature. I mix them up also because the uh like the way telekinesis causes like bodily harm to people like the exploding john cassavetes or the exploding heads i can i can see the connection and this might have been my first jeff goldblum film it was probably not my first gina davis but i love these two together and it was really nice that they were a couple in real life and that they uh, kind of carried that into the film. I think that their chemistry works so well in this movie. And I love that first and foremost, it's a love story about these two people. These two, I, I find both of them completely gorgeous, but in terms of conventional sense, they're not, they're kind of oddballs and they act a little oddball. And I love that these two oddballs are getting together. It's like a whole series of Cronenberg films with like nervy, thoughtful character actors in the lead parts. Like you have James Woods in Videodrome and Christopher Walken in The Dead Zone. You have Jeremy Irons in Dead Ringers. And it's like this very different kind of uh, hero uh, than what you get in a lot of thrillers. And, um, but also just the, um, like the way that their, their special gifts or powers seem to like wear on them physically uh, as like a recurring theme is interesting. Like the, uh, you know, the way that like uh, walking in the dead zone, like his power drains him physically. It's like, it's killing him almost to have this gift. And uh, yeah, I think that that kind of, that kind of theme carries over into this one too. But I love how, how funny this one is. I think it's like his funniest film and it's, I don't know too much about, he actually had written like a, a, a script that was like an insect comedy before this. I think it's called like Six Legs, like set on an island about people being addicted to eating bugs. And I, I just, uh, I always wondered what would have happened if he had like gotten a proper comedy out. Like this is maybe the closest thing, even though it gets quite sad in the, in the, you know, as it goes along. But that first act is, uh, maybe his like, closest thing he gets to like a screwball comedy like i'm reminded of something like mr deeds goes to town or something because of the um you know the reporter falling in love with the subject and you know you don't know if it initially whether or not like you know she'll betray his trust but then it kind of goes in a different direction and the thing that i really love about this the way that this film handles their relationship and connects it to the the science is you have all of these movies with this sort of hubristic scientist character who gets himself into trouble because he plays God and follows through, sort of rashly follows through with this experiment without thinking it through. But here, it's really clear that he's sort of slow, measured, he's taking his time, he doesn't want any press about it, he doesn't want it to be rushed. And the only reason he rushes the experiment is because he has a moment of really deep insecurity about her and thinks that maybe she's going off to see someone else and it makes him totally crazy. And I feel like that moment is one of the single most like relatable human things in any Cronenberg film. 
though he's dealing with science fiction and horror so much, there are so many human relationships in Cronenberg that I think just get glossed over. I mean, thinking about Johnny Smith in The Dead Zone and his relationship with, with his former flame and how she's moved on without him. I mean, that stuff is heartbreaking. And this is the same kind of stuff. I mean, to see them build this relationship together. And I love that we start the movie. I mean, we've got the credits and everything. And I could be thinking way too much about it, but I love the the animated thing that they're doing to the the people at the party, and they they look like microbes in a petri dish, and and the way that they color code them. And I could be thinking way too much about this, but to me, it's like they're using pretty much four primary colors. And I was just like, oh, it's like GATC. I mean, and we're going to get DNA running through this movie so much, and that was one of the smartest things I could do was to move this more into the DNA age with this and you know this is still pre-oj so we're not entirely sure what's going on with dna kind of stuff but at least it's out in the ether and we know what's happening but anyway when they cut from the opening credits they cut right to that medium shot of jeff goldblum and just take us right into the story so fast and it's basically him hitting on her at a party it's kind of nice the way that they're flirting and stuff and he's a little desperate and you can tell that he's not very comfortable with reaching out to anybody and that this is probably one of the first times that he's tried to reach out to another human being because other than veronica you don't really see him in his world before the accident happens you don't see him with anybody else i think he spends almost all of his time in his laboratory slash loft space with his baboons and that's it well yeah there's that great line where he says to her when they you know go out for cheeseburgers where he says to her he's been working alone for too long and he sort of wants someone to be there to observe the process and i always thought that was interesting in the sense that he's not looking for a partner he doesn't want somebody to collaborate with him he wants somebody to record what he's doing And that it's also her that ends up being such an inspiration. That whole idea of when he finally makes that connection with her sexually, and then she starts to talk about the flesh and how, you know, she wants to eat him up and the whole idea of, you know, grandmother's pinching cheeks and stuff. That's what finally sets that light off above his head and makes him understand what's going on and really helps him with his next breakthrough. Yeah, that's the one part where, so, I think a lot of people have sort of written about this at this point, but I find it interesting, the sort of scholarship that goes along with Cronenberg's movies and people kind of debating about how really rooted in sci-fi he is and how he sort of goes off into left field a lot. But I think that is those moments, like the one you're talking about, where he realizes that it can't just be mathematical. It can't just be the computer recreating something because that sort of spark of life is missing. And there has to be this kind of creative element to move it along. And I think that shows up throughout a lot of his films where it's sort of the scientific missing link is love or sex or some sort of emotional intimacy that his protagonists have trouble dealing with on their own in a really interesting way. I like that it doesn't, uh, that he doesn't explain what exactly the poetry of flesh is that like he's teaching the the program to get excited about flesh. And that's the missing piece of the puzzle, but that isn't articulated. Like what exactly he's, he's expressing 
because it should be left to your imagination how he's doing that. But that's that's the biggest jump from the hard science to something like supernatural almost. I think they're using like frog DNA to just fill in the holes when they don't have the regular DNA. I forget how DNA is tied into some of Jeff Goldblum's biggest films. Jurassic Park came out when I was like eight or nine, and I was a huge paleontology nerd. I, I did this annoying, I'm sure, thing as a kid where I would just sort of like memorize encyclopedias of things. And so naturally, I saw Jurassic Park about a million times in the theater, and his character was my favorite. And so I'm pretty sure The Fly maybe was my second Goldblum movie or second movie where I was like conscious that I was watching him. So it's hard for me to like, I know he's been in at this point, so many different kinds of movies, but it's really hard for me to separate him out from that idea or that like, sort of seeing him as this like kind of quirky scientist. The quirkiness of Jeff Goldblum plays so well in this movie, and it's hard to imagine anybody else in this role, and that he can mix that quirkiness with the sexiness, which is just such a strange combination. And like those scenes of him doing uh, the gymnastics and stuff, it's just like, my God, what a body on this guy. It, it's right there with that scene of him in Jurassic Park with his leather jacket open, and you see his chest. It's just like, my God, what this doesn't make any sense. I love the anecdote that Cronenberg had got into better shape making the film just because he was working out so much to keep up with Jeff Goldblum that he actually (laughs) got in better shape by the end of the shoot where he usually gains weight over the course of a production. Well, with all the eating in this movie, it is really remarkable. There's so much food in this movie, not just the, the sweet snacks that Goldblum is eating later on in the, in the film. But I mean, that cheeseburger is such a, a magical line. And every time he says that, I'm just like, my God, a cheeseburger does sound really good, doesn't it? This is something that pops up throughout his films where everybody knows that he's sort of connected with this idea of body horror, but he has this really great way of bringing these kind of like visceral, tactile, sensory experiences to the screen and eating and sort of touching things shows up a lot in a way where I think sometimes it becomes a little gross. Like even in the cheeseburger scene where he's, he says something to her about like how his experiments went wrong and she wants to know why. And he says like, not now. And she holds up, she holds up the cheeseburger and she says, it can't be worse than this. Can it? (laughs) I read the, uh, the Cronenberg screenplay for this. And I, one part of that scene that's, that's not in the final film that I thought was interesting was the, um, their shots of like how the cheeseburgers are being made in an assembly line kind of way. And like, Part of the attraction he had to cheeseburgers kind of tied in with his Eisen, with his, uh, his Einstein style, uh, wardrobe, which is that he liked the, the sameness and the predictability of it. Like there was no, uh, mental thought being kind of, uh, like there was no surprise element to the cheeseburgers, the fast food. And that was part of the attraction he had to eating like that. I thought it was just because, you know, he was meant to be like a little bit, uh, like of an adolescent and like eating junk food and you know not maybe totally being a mature adult, but that, that, that there was another reason for it in the in the original script. It's also funny that you bring that up because generally people on the autism spectrum, like you know people with Aspergers and things like that, who are functioning, tend to gear towards repetition. Like 
you eat the same foods and you wear the same clothes. And that's something that I have done my entire life. And so the first time I saw this film, when he, you know, he talks about how he just has all the same clothes, it, it, he gives the explanation about because that's what Einstein did. But that's something that I always really connected with, because it's not something you see in movies a lot, where a character will just say, or indicate that, like, they're more comfortable just sort of following this pattern. And I think that's one of the things that makes me really, one of the many things that makes me really love the character. When Ronnie is out buying clothes for him after she finds out that all of the things in his wardrobe are the same, <laughs> is she buying him the jacket that we'll then later see in the movie, the one time where he goes out in the streets and is he's basically just wearing a jacket and no shirt underneath? I guess he's got a tendency to do that. I mean, with that kind of chest, can you blame him? But <laughs> right? yes, I'm pretty sure it's the same. It's the jacket that she buys. So many little subtle things like that where... You know, he goes through this sort of obvious physical transformation, but having someone else enter into his life and have, you know, in a sort of kind of ridiculous symbolic way, have his DNA blend with someone else's DNA, it it starts to change him in a more kind of abstract way. And I love that Cronenberg sort of shows that through like food and clothes and things like that. She's a force of change for good, whereas the fly is pretty much a change of force for bad. She definitely is a positive, creative force in his life, but I don't necessarily know that I feel like the fly, and this might be a crazy thing to say, I don't necessarily know that the movie judges the fly transformation in a moral way, like it's a bad change. It's just... It's more that his rash experimentation got him where he is, if if that makes sense at all, what I'm trying to say. Right. It doesn't necessarily make him an evil person once the fly comes out. I mean, he does some questionable things, let's say, but it's not like he's being motivated to be a bad guy. Or it's also like, I think in some of Cronenberg's other films where there are definitely a lot of different instances of characters who undergo some sort of experiment and usually of their own accord, but sometimes like in rabid, not of their own accord. And they start to go through this kind of monstrous transformation and they lose their humanity. And I think he's an example of somebody who doesn't necessarily welcome those changes. Like in Rabid, Rose is sort of taken over by this transformation that seems to be mostly internal that we don't really like she doesn't become a fly, for instance, but she kind of gives herself over to it and doesn't try to hold on to who she is the same way that he does. I mean, that basically becomes the entire final act of the film is how can he preserve the real Brundle? Right. Whether it be in a reliquary of his own parts or through, you know, messages that he records to himself or posterity. Yeah. It's not like he is Kevin Bacon in Hollow Man, where I think Bacon was a dick at the beginning, but then he just relishes when he gets to become the invisible man and just is like, great. Now I can rape with abandon. Well, Invisible Man, original Invisible Man is basically the same way where he's not terrible, but he's 
it, it's also sort of the same thing in like Mamoulian's Jekyll and Hyde, where the character is just really, he's not evil, but he's really self-absorbed and he doesn't care about anything other than his experiments. And the experiments allow him to go further down that path away from civilization and humanity, if you will, but not Brundlefly. I think it was really smart the way that Cronenberg changed Charles Pogue's original script and the original short story where it was his wife, you know, that, that the Brundle character was married and having that kind of known constant in your life is so different than what we've been talking about as far as the introduction of Ronnie and the way that she upsets the apple cart and changes Brundle in one way versus the experiments changing him in another way. I think that that new source of her was a really smart addition to the screenplay. The way that Cronenberg explores romantic relationships and how we're so dependent on them, but they can be so difficult and so traumatic. That's what makes this more than just your sort of average gross out body horror or your sort of average science gone wrong or average monster movie. It becomes something else entirely. How this one always played for me, and I, I know that it's not always a director's choice to go project by project in, you know, in the way that they're choosing. I always think of this as like him taking what he learned about how to depict romance in the dead zone and grafting that or fusing that with maybe the gorier, you know, body horror, mad scientist type films, uh, that he had done in the seventies. I, I think of them, it feels almost a little bit neat in a way that, and I know that he was coming off of like a, a uh, a total recall project that ultimately went nowhere. Like he wasn't coming off of the dead zone when he made the fly. But in, if you look at them in a, in a, uh, in order, chronological order of what he's made, I mean, that's how I always thought of the fly. I always thought of it as kind of the grand summing up of that, of that phase of his career and that, you know, the success of it allowed him to kind of transition over to a different kind of filmmaking altogether with a different cinematographer and a different kind of attitude towards uh, source material and, you know, kind of escaping genre filmmaking altogether for um, most of the uh, post-fly films. Like, I always think of this as like the big grand kind of summing up film or attempt to summing up every thing from Shivers through the dead zone in one film. Whether or not it succeeds at that, I don't know, but that's how it always played for me. Isn't Dead Ringers right after this? It is right after this. Everything you just said, I think, applies to Dead Ringers because it has the same, even though that film is definitely a bit more difficult and sort of perverse, but it also has that really tragic romantic relationship and it has that same sort of inept, socially inept protagonist who is going through these experiments and really struggling with this notion of a sense of self. And so I guess I see them as being sort of companion pieces. Like Dead Ringers is my favorite of all his films, but I don't know that I would say it's, I think it's better than The Fly, but I, I guess maybe in my head, they're sort of paired for that reason. Yeah. Well, everything you just said about Dead Ringers could also apply maybe to M. Butterfly as well. I mean, I, I think that the, some of the themes that he's tackling still kind of recur with Dead Ringers and later films, but I think maybe it's just the, the, the imagery that I'm thinking of, like with like the horror sci-fi kind of territory. I, I think that 
Dead Ringers feels like a, like a decisive break with with that kind of imagery. You know, it may be something he was trying to do for a long time because I think he was trying to make that in the early '80s and nobody would finance it because, you know, the gynecologist theme or maybe it was just too, you know, too 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 like radical a departure from what people thought of him as doing. But I used to think of it as kind of a like a break. Uh, from like, you know, Dead Ringers seemed like, seemed like something quite different, but like watching it again and thinking about like, it feels like there's a lot of things that carry over into Crash or that carry over into Naked Lunch or to, to Dead Ringers. Like it doesn't feel quite as neat, uh, a dividing line as I used to think of it. Cause I thought of it as the last of the, you know, Fangoria friendly kind of Cronenberg films for a long time. And now I don't think it's as simple. Nothing about Cronenberg is ever simple. I love that Cronenberg goes from playing an OBGYN to making a movie about OBGYNs <laughs> or, or gynecologists, I should say. <laughs> and I, it took me probably two or three views to realize it was him. And I love that you're introduced to him by the sound of his, uh, I mean, anyone who's heard Cronenberg talk, his voice is super recognizable. At least I think it is. So I love that you're introduced to his voice before you see him in the scrubs. It's so good. There's a lot of times where sound bridges things in this movie, like the fly noise that we hear when we see the hairs on his back and then go to the fly that's buzzing around him and Ronnie after they've had sex, after he's gone through the teleportation machine. It's just like, wow, that's a, and there's a few other times where we get those sound bridges and it's a really nice way to put this together. The sound is actually the one thing that he's, uh, he's monkeyed around with Lucas style in the versions that we have now. There's like certain kind of like synthesized orchestral stings that are missing in the versions that are circulate on home video now. It's like the one, it's subtle, but it's the one rework I'm aware of that he's done with any of his films from the theatrical version to what you get on home video. That's crazy. I had no idea. He doesn't strike me as the type of person who would do something like that. So it's interesting that. If he's going to go back and meddle, that's what he's going to meddle with. Yeah, I only heard about this recently. It's like, it's not something that jumps out at you like a visual effect. It's just something very subtle. Oh, thank God. I know that Cronenberg has just described the music, Howard Shore's score of this as being very bombastic, very over the top, very operatic. And I agree that it's operatic, but I don't feel that it's over the top. I, there's no point in this movie where I'm sitting there going, whoa, that's a little too much. You really need to break that down. It really feels very appropriate for the emotions of all of these scenes. There's no point in this where I think Shore is too present. When he uses Howard Shore, it seems to me like he's intentionally trying to play with these sort of melodramatic conventions in a way that I love. And I couldn't imagine this film with a different score. Everything about this movie just comes together so well for me. And there's no wrong performances. There's no wrong steps for it. And then going back and watching all of the deleted scenes and some of the trim scenes, it's like, okay, all of these decisions make sense. The idea of him putting the cat and the baboon together and him having to club this cat baboon to death was taken out after a poor test screening because the audience didn't want to see him being mean like that, I guess it was. And I was like, okay, yeah, I kind of understand that. And then all of the other things, I'm just like, okay, yeah, this moves the story along better. I kind of wish that I would have seen the cheeseburger thing. That sounds like a really cool idea. But all of the other stuff that I saw, I was like, okay, even like when he is talking about the flesh with Ronnie, 
there are tons of little trims in there and every single one of them I'm like, okay, yeah, they they got to the heart of the conversation. We didn't need the filigree. So what have we proved? Computers are dumb. They only know what you tell them. They have no sense of poetry. Uh, life is poetry and what's stake is uh, poetry. The computer is giving us its interpretation of a stake. It's uh, translating it for us. It's rethinking it rather than reproducing it and uh, something is getting lost in the translation. Me. I'm lost. The ghost in the machine, life essence, soul. And I know what you're going to say. You're going to say what a stake is dead. Sure, a stake is dead, but it's dead life. I don't think I was going to say that. No, it's what you've already said. The flesh. It should make the computer uh, crazy. Like those old ladies pinching babies. But it doesn't. Not yet. I haven't taught the computer to be made crazy by the uh, flesh. One of the things I love so much about him as a director is his films always feel, even the longer ones, to me, his films always feel very economical. It's not something where you want there to be a lot of meandering, I guess, for lack of a better word. Like, I tend to not like agree with you and not feel like, Oh, I wish those cutscenes had been put back in. It's like, no, they don't really belong there. Like they're interesting to see, but they don't, they're not like a crucial part of the film. That was interesting that like that the, a lot the most substantial things that they cut were the things that made him more of a, a villainous or monstrous or threatening character. I mean, not beyond even just the scene where he, you know, uh, merges the cat and the monkey and then, and then bludgeons it to death. But there was a whole sequence I don't even know if they shot it. I can't remember. It's not in the deleted scenes, but it's in the screenplay where he goes out and murders a homeless woman at a time where he's like, I guess, kind of struggling against the flies impulses, like the, uh, like the claw or whatever, like, uh, kills. And maybe it's not even him kind of con- totally controlling it, but like when he goes out, uh, into the city at night on his own and, and, and kills somebody. And it's like those scenes of, um, you know, old fashioned monster movie menace are like the things that, were the most substantial things to go from script to rough cut to final cut, you know, were, were the things that made it maybe closer to what people expect as a, a straightforward horror movie. I love the evolution of Charles Pogue's screenplay into Cronenberg's screenplay into what we see on the screen. That scene that you're talking about, the part of him going out and uh, the the claw coming through or the the leg coming through his side. I mean, that was all shot, and that's right in Pogue's screenplay. And then, yeah, the the screenplay continues. Both Pogue's and Cronenberg's continue into that murder scene. And the less it became directly like Pogue's, the better it was. Not to say that Pogue's screenplay was bad. There were really interesting ideas, and the way that Cronenberg could take those ideas and then change those and bring, I guess, while we're talking about it, bring his own DNA into it and change this into another thing was really, really smart. And we talked about the way that Ronnie was introduced versus a wife character. I think it's it's her... Isn't her fingernails that scratch him? Is that right? That that that's how he gets the scratch on his back where the hairs start to grow through. Cause in the Pogue screenplay, he adopts this cat named Igor and the cat scratches him. And then he, he 
starts to develop the hairs from the scratch and then really develops a ton of hair on the face. And it's just like, no, it's nicer that it was kind of more of a connection to Ronnie. But there are those those nods and things. Like, there's a, a moment uh, – we haven't talked about the character of Stathis Borens. Borens at one point is talking to Veronica and says that, you know, oh, yeah, he was really big on the F-32 project. And they make no clarification what F-32 is whatsoever. And it's funny because almost the same thing is happening in Poe's screenplay where it's much more of a corporate intrigue kind of thing uh, where there's – Stathis Borns would be transformed into, rather than a magazine editor, he would be the guy who, basically, that we'll see in The Fly, too. He's more of like that Bartok-type character. And then there's a middle manager who is friend and somewhat enemy to the Seth Brendel character. So Bartok and this middle manager guy are talking, and it's just like, blah, 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 F-32. He he had the breakthrough on F-32, and then the Bartok character took all the credit. So he throws in F-32 almost as a nod to the Pogue screenplay. play. It doesn't mean anything, nor does it have to mean anything. It's just to say that Borens has done his research and knows now that Seth Brendel knows his shit. Something I think we have to talk about is Cronenberg's use of names throughout, yes. <laughs> throughout his films, especially for these sorts of like older kind of authoritative scientist figures who are always men, especially I would say in the first like two decades of his career, they ha- he, he has the best names ever and Stathis is <laughs> definitely among them. I love that it's the Bartok Corporation, which I'm guessing is a nod to Bella Bartok, and then Monolith Publishing. You know, like everything has such clear branding throughout all of Cronenberg's work. I think I'm paraphrasing, but I'm, I think in uh, cult movies, Danny Perry has some line about like David Cronenberg specializing in names you'll never find in the phone book. I love Stathis' character so much. It would be so, and he's, he's such a creep, but. He winds up being weirdly sympathetic in a way that, you know, in the first half of the film, you just flat out hate him. Like, he just wants her to be under his thumb. He wants ownership of her. He doesn't really care about her or her career. But I don't necessarily feel that way about him in the second half of the film. It's like, also, sort of to your point earlier, Gina Davis is gorgeous, but there's something not conventionally beautiful about her and something kind of strange about her that if he was just a sort of like shallow corporate figure, like wouldn't he have moved on to different girlfriends by then? But like, there's something about her that makes it seem like he genuinely cares about her, even in his own sort of inept masculine way that Cronenberg often criticizes throughout his films. I think I think that character might be the the thing that changes the most in subtle ways from the screenplay to how it's played out in the film because I think he's meant to be a little bit more sympathetic even in the first half than the film ultimately winds up uh you know uh presenting him as cuz and I don't know if that's just how he's played as um cuz I think in the script like even some of his you know, crude lines about like, you know, like, can I have your body? And after, you know, like, like, or, um, 
you know, can we just have like a sexual relationship? Like things that are like, oh yeah, the, you know, the inappropriate- stress relieving sex. <laughs> yeah, like things that are inappropriate in a workplace relationship. But like, she's laughing at them in the script. Like she's smiling. Like it's meant to be a little bit like crude humor as a defense maybe to break the tension like it's not quite as as inappropriate as as it comes off in the film um so that when he makes the transition into kind of a complicated good guy it's not quite the jump that maybe it would be for some viewers in the way that it comes off in the film I mean, things have only gotten worse since 1986 when you're watching this the first time and seeing him basically stalking her at the department store when she's buying the clothes or him waiting outside the loft all night long and realizing that she had spent the night with him. I mean, those things just get worse and worse now. And to know that he is Ronnie's boss just really throws more complication into their relationship. So... I don't know how this played in 1986 when I saw it as a 14-year-old, but now in 2019, it's just like, oh, he is so skin-crawlingly creepy at the beginning. And he, yeah, he kind of redeems himself, but mostly just because he's there. He's a presence in the second half of the film when Ronnie is now going through struggles. Because talking about the changes that Brundle undergoes, it's interesting because some people will say that this is like a an AIDS metaphor, and I can kind of see that. But at the same time, it's like there are two things that happen. One is a drug metaphor that I'm seeing when he is on his high with the fly DNA, and then when he starts to crash with the actual physical, outward physical manifestations of the fly DNA, that seems to kind of pivot this movie into more of a, a disease film. And to the point where they're really, they're just right on the nose when it comes to like talking about, oh, this is a disease. What if you catch it? Those kind of things. Being 1986, I know that Cronenberg says that he didn't intentionally mean this to be an AIDS allegory, but it plays right into that. Same exact thing for me. There are definitely a lot of films that I could see sort of following that pattern, but I, for some reason, I've never felt that way about The Fly. Whereas I feel that way much more about something like his, some of his earlier films, like Shivers or even Rabid. And there's this really great, I'm trying, I think it was maybe an art form or something. There's this really great John Waters quote where he talks about how looking back on Shivers, he feels like it sort of foreshadowed the AIDS epidemic in a really sort of strange and scary way. And maybe it's just because that it's more of like, a story about a group of people and it's a little bit less personal and the characters are more anonymous. Whereas this just, I don't know, feels different to me, even though there are definitely those sort of transformation and kind of contagion themes. I mean, I I see where the AIDS imagery comes in as his, you know, condition develops and like the, uh, the hair and the, the fingernails and like the physical deterioration, like that stage of it feels like an illness drama, but I don't, I don't equate that condition with his, his sexual awakening in a way that like maybe, yeah, like you know, this, the earlier films like Shivers and Rabbit do have like that, that sex horror kind of link a little bit more closely. So I think, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think when Cronenberg pushes back against that, it's, I don't know if it's disingenuous because I'm sure it was like on his mind to some extent when he was making the film, but maybe it's just like he's afraid of just reducing it to just that because it doesn't fit quite neatly as it needs a uh, parable. Actually, I think you just 
hit on the head why in my head I don't connect them because it's all about that sort of sexual awakening as sort of like Mike, what you were saying earlier about how Gina Davis's character is a positive influence. It feels like Brundle's sexual awakening is a positive thing. And it like, of course leads to this rash experiment and so on and so forth. But it feels like a really positive influence in his life and not a dangerous, scary one. Right. I don't think his sexual awakening is necessarily that scary, though sex gets tied in with it when he goes and picks up that woman at the bar. But for me, it's more, much more of a, a, a drug thing. I mean, when he is shoveling all that sugar into his coffee and the way that he's speaking so rapidly and stuff, I mean, this is 1986. This is probably half the agents in Hollywood right now are talking with this amount of speed and, you know, have a, a little gold uh, shovel around their neck kind of thing. It's made me think very carefully about what I've been feeling and why, and I'm beginning to think that the sheer process of being taken apart out of my atom and put back together again. Why, it's like coffee being put through a filter. It's somehow a purifying process. It's purified me. It's cleansed me. And I'll tell you, I think it's going to allow me to realize the personal potential I've been neglecting all these years that I've been obsessively pursuing goal after goal. Do you normally take coffee with your sugar? What? You know, I just don't think I've ever given me a chance to be me. But... Of course, interestingly, at the exact same moment that I uh, achieved what will probably prove to be my life's work, that's the moment when I started being the real me, finally. So, uh, listen, and not to wax messianic, but uh, it may be true that the synchronicity of those two events might blur the resultant individual effect of either individual. But it is uh, uh, nevertheless also certainly true, I will say now, however uh, subjectively, that uh, human teleportation... Molecular decimation, breakdown, and reformation is inherently purging. It makes a man king. From the moment I walked out of the pot, I felt like a million bucks. You know, I think I am going to have a, a cannoli after all. Waiter, I mean, what an accomplishment. But what have I really done? All I've done is say to the world, let's go. Move. Catch me if you can. Waiter, Jesus Christ. And then the way that he also wants her, wants Ronnie to experience going through the telepod. He wants somebody else to have the same high that he has. It just, it's, it's such a, a cocaine kind of a thing for me. And I've seen, and I've talked with people that have been on this kind of a manic drug high who just want to share it with the world. And it's like, well, it's not for me. And I like when Ronnie pushes back against him and just like, nope, I don't want to do this. And we hear the same thing again from the woman later on when he's trying to also force her into the telepod. Yeah, I love that line where she's like, I already feel sexy. In that scene at the at the cafe, and I'm sure most of the adults watching the movie when it came out would have put that together but he just seems really coked up banging on the table and really fidgety and no patience about the waiting for the waiter to bring him a cannoli or whatever it is that he wants and there's that sort of great line where he talks about how his it must have been like filtering out his molecules when they were teleported and it just reminded me of Anytime somebody is trying to give you this sort of like new agey pseudoscience reason for why you should do drugs with them is like, you don't understand, you're going to feel so much better and like it will make you a better version of yourself. (laughs) Sam, if you quit eating gluten, this is exactly how you'll feel. One of the things I associate with early Cronenberg 
are like these uh, expository dialogue scenes with a lot of jargon that is like made up science. And what I love about the scene where he's kind of uh, rushing on sugar and his, you know, his new fly kind of nervy tenseness is the um, that it turns this whole notion of expository dialogue into comedy by going so fast and so ridiculous that, you know, it, it becomes like he is saying things that have like real kind of weight, but it's it's treated as a throwaway gag at the same time. Since you have mentioned it earlier in the episode, he does, and I this must be intentional on the part of Cronenberg, he does do a lot of like comedic things in the first half of the movie that remind me of various sort of Cary Grant characters, especially when Cary Grant plays like the sort of bumbling scientist type, like in bringing up baby and, and stuff like that. And now I'm Brundle. now I'm not going to be able to get that out of my head. Thank you. I know that they say even in the extras that Goldblum was playing it like Cary Grant. And because I remember that line in the extras over the shot of him coming in and playing the piano for Ronnie for the first time that she's in his loft space. And he looks so suave and debonair and with the two telepods behind him. And it's just like, <laughs> okay. And that, yeah, that playful thing that he does with the music and how he will play the sinister notes and things. It's just like, oh, that, that's so nice. And yeah, nobody can play Manic nearly as well as Jeff Goldblum can when he is just struggling, trying to find those words and just, you know, he's, he's so close to careening off the rails when he is just throwing out all of that jargon. But he can do it, man. You know, Ian Malcolm strikes, strikes again. He's more genuine and less smarmy than Ian Malcolm, although it does make me a little bit sad that he doesn't have quite anything on the level of the the scene in Jurassic Park where the way he explains chaos theory is by dripping water onto Lara Dern's hand. <laughs> Presumably. I love that. It's, it's so good. And I saw that for the first time as a kid with my dad who who went to grad school for physics. So anytime something scientifically wrong happens in a movie, my dad like shuffles in his seat or makes a face or has to actually say what the right version is. And during that scene, I vividly remember my dad just put his head in his hand <laughs> Because he's like hitting on Laura Dern. Yep. There's like a love triangle going on in the Jurassic Park that not a lot of people seem to realize is happening. The future ex, Mrs. Malcolm. Give me, give me that big glass of water. Sorry. We're going to conduct an experiment. It should be still. The car's bouncing up and down. But that's okay. It's just an example. Now, put your hand flat like a hieroglyphic. Now, let's say a drop of water falls in your hand. Which way is the drop going to roll off? Over which finger or over the thumb or the other Thumb. Uh-huh. Okay. Okay, now freeze your hand, freeze your hand. Don't move. I'm going to do the same thing. Start with the same same place again. Right. Which way is going to roll off? Let's say back. Same way. Same way. Same back. Same way. <gasps> change. Change. Why? Because tiny variations, uh, the, the orientation of the hairs on your hands. Yeah, hey, Alan, look at this. Um, the amount of blood descending your vessels, imperfections in the skin. Imperfections in the skin? Microscopic, and never repeat and vastly affect the outcome. That's unpredictability. And uh, there it is. I just wanted to touch on real quick when he's trying to get her to go through the pods and 
she's not interested in doing it and how it has that kind of uh, resonance with like drug culture and drug addicts and, you know, wanting someone to, you know, share your addiction. And I, I was thinking just watching it again this time about Crash and how, you know, Crash is about, you know, a, a, a sexually healthy relationship that, that that's then thrown off when, you know, the man has this kind of uh, experience that transforms his body and he, they they become sexually out of sync the way that like they're sexually out of sync in the fly like he's he still has a voracious need to keep going when she's worn out and he needs a new partner that he's then trying to make go through the same process to change her body that he's gone through because he thinks that that's what it's that's what that what the answer is to get in sync with a new partner i was just reminded so much of crash and how how this could have gone down that route um had they just decided to make it more of a of a sexual thing rather than it transforming into what ultimately kills him I mean, can you imagine? He never would have gotten funding for that film if it was like, okay, so these people are going to get into a pod <laughs> and they're going to have sex. Maybe that's the unproduced sequel remake thing he's written. I don't know. It'd be nice. That A, would not be surprising, and B, I wish that would happen. Yeah, there is a lot of sexuality that runs through this. And I, I was thinking this morning, I was like, where was I just talking about hands and sex? And I realized that it was to you, Bill, last week when we were talking about body double and the whole idea of, you know, hands and casts or hands that are numb or, you know, just problems with hands being very indicative of sexual problems and hands run throughout this movie as well. I don't know if it's necessarily a bloody hand that the baboon strikes against the glass in that really creepy moment. Him breaking off the arm wrestler's hand. Oh my God. The audience went fucking crazy and I still can't watch that without just cringing. But him taking care of that guy, that sexual threats hand, and then later on melting Stathis Boris's hand, I really don't think that there's any sort of coincidence about that. I don't think I'm being a little too Freudian when I talk about him basically castrating these other characters by taking care of their hands. It's interesting you bring that up because that is definitely a recurring theme in German expressionist horror films as well. The most famous example is something like Hands of Orlock, but at least to me, and maybe I read into this too much, but I think throughout his earlier horror films especially, it seems like Cronenberg would sort of pick out a couple of horror tropes and would explore kind of his own reinterpretations of them. And I could not agree more. Like, I think that that's super intentional and is maybe his way of kind of contributing to that sort of like early example of body horror that maybe popped up. We talk about hands and all I'm thinking of is just the guinea pig with the hands and return of the fly. <laughs> and I know that we'll probably talk about the makeup and stuff, but I love the, the subtle transformation before the really harsh transformations like when he is out at that bar and trying to get that girl to go home with them the way that he is just looking really bad on the face and that his eyes are so sunken those things are so effective to me even more so than the really striking you know full body transformations that we're going to get those subtle changes in his body really come through because we've seen him at peak physical form earlier in the film and now to see him start to decline and those sores and things just oh it, it really it does a number to you i know that it's jeff goldblum and i love him as much as the next person but 
My one sort of issue with the movie is the scene at the bar where he gets that lady to come back home with him because it's like, okay, number one, he looks the way you just described, like somebody who's done way too many drugs and is in some sort of physical decline because of it. He throws down the hundred dollar bill and basically says, you know, I'll beat you. And also she's, she's part of my winnings she has that sort of line like, well, I'm not a prostitute, but she doesn't seem to have all that much... Conv- like, I don't think she's actually supposed to be a prostitute character, but it just it's so unbelievable that, like, you know, he insults her, he looks terrible, and he snaps some guy's arm in half, and she's like, sure, let's go drink together, and then we'll go back to your house. Like, what? I know Cronenberg is, is always loath to have political readings of his films and I, I know that you know people like robin wood used to give him grief for like you know arguing about like whether or not the films had a sexual conservatism to them i think about class when i think about this scene and i think you know just the fact that like they're meant to be these uh you know it's like a brendel fly versus barfly kind of situation where it's you know the uh you know these blue collar types that are just aggressively arm wrestling and not meant to be like intellectuals the way he is and like they're almost like he's treating them like the guinea pigs like they're one step above the animals he's experimenting with earlier in the film and like the way that they're kind of dispatched it's an 80s era popcorn movie on some level and i think that like a lot of times you know, those films could be kind of making fun of like the poor ed- uneducated characters. And I think of that, of the, uh, the character that Joy Puchel plays, the, uh, the one that goes back with him. I think, you know, it's making a judgment call on, you know, who, who she is and who she would go home with versus the Gina Davis character. Like it might be, I don't think he's trying to make some sort of social comment, but it's like, it can play that way. No, I actually, I hadn't thought about that angle of it but that i totally agree that makes perfect sense and seems like something he would do in a intentional but subtle way for sure well we should really talk about flies as well i mean it is very interesting of of course the original short story the fly but just the idea of a fly and what that represents i mean you could look at this movie and be like, oh, well, this is an updating, not necessarily of, of Langeland's The Fly, but it's an updating of Kafka's Metamorphosis and this whole idea of changing into an insect, a bug of some sort, and what bugs represent. I mean, again, I won't try to get too Freudian in this, but just what bugs represent and what flies represent. I mean, flies run through so much of popular culture that it is kind of crazy, like just looking at songs with the word fly in the title that don't mean taking off and, and, and flying away, but the actual insect, they run through so much and that the fly is such a, a base insect and just associated with so many awful things associated with, you know, in this movie with the eating of sweets. I mean, there's no necessarily like, you know, planting of maggots inside of open wounds or anything like that. But, and then there's also, you know, the fecal uh, uh, connotations of flies. So you have all those things that a fly represents and they don't necessarily play into that too much, but, but I think it's definitely there. You know, the, the DNA of the fly is throughout the entire film. I thought it was interesting in the Chuck Pogue script that the first time we see flies, if I remember correctly, is when he disposes of, uh, a dead animal that he's killed throughout the testing. And, uh, you know, like he puts it in a, uh, like a sweatshirt or something and throws it in a dumpster outside of his workspace. And I thought that 
maybe it was trying to draw the the uh, the connection like the flies are being attracted to the dead animals that he's disposing of in the uh, testing and maybe had he not been killing these animals for the sake of science there wouldn't be so many flies around that one wouldn't have wound up in the teleporter with him these films have like a very strange attitude towards animal testing and the second one with Eric Stoltz is even more like foregrounds that that issue you know the attitude towards in experimenting on animals and i i think about like the first baboon dying and like does the baboon in i'm trying to remember in the cronenberg film does the baboon in any way play a part in that fly winding up in the telepod with him because that would be poetic justice yeah i don't know if it's necessarily the connection between the dead baboon and the fly are are made outright but the first time i think we see the fly it's bothering the other baboon yeah. So there is kind of a, a a baboon connection there. Like I don't think the baboon is is, is shooing the fly in to avenge his dead brother or anything, but you know, it's but I do think that um yeah, I it, that was that was an element of the screenplay because I think I forget if the dumpster is even in the um the deleted scene or not of um when he goes outside in the uh you know, uh in the deleted scene where after he's uh killed the uh the the monstrous animal that he's created um whether or not the dumpsters there i picture it as being outside his window but i might be misremembering just from what i read but i just thought that was interesting you know things like animal testing or abortion which is another thing we could talk about like there's social themes that i don't think he's intentionally ever a didactic filmmaker in that way so i don't think he's trying to push buttons with hot issues but i do i can't help but notice them when he's dealing with those those images I never really thought about how the fly might connect to dead animals or to the baboon. It just seemed like such an innocuous thing that everyone has dealt with in their homes at some point or out in the world. And I always kind of wondered if the script was sort of trying to say that it was inevitable. Even if he was really careful and sent the baboon out for testing, could he really prevent a fly from sneaking into the pod with him. But I also totally agree with you that I love the way he raises these themes and brings up these questions and makes you think about them without ever resolving anything. And I think that's one of the things that makes him one of my favorite directors is he, unlike a lot of other horror movie filmmakers who are maybe doing it unintentionally, he is very careful not to choose sides about issues, like especially with the animal testing, but even more so with the abortion. I just think it's so well handled in such a surprising way for the 80s. I, I was having a conversation with somebody about this film, and they said they they had read something, and I unfortunately haven't read it, but they had read something saying that The Fly was a pro-life film, that, you know, that it had like, you know, a, a, that it was, ta- that it was taking a stance on abortion. And I was trying to think, like, how would someone even read it into that film? And I know that, you know, uh, Stathis Boron is the, played as the villain, if, if there is one for like the first half, and he's urging her to have the abortion. So maybe like, I don't know, I'm trying to like grasp at straws and like, maybe that's where they're taking it from, or the fact that Brundle is pressuring her not to have the abortion. And is that because he's the hero or is he a monster? You know, like, I don't know. I mean, I think that like when we see Stathis kind of 
accepting her right to choose, you know, like that's kind of like at the point where he starts becoming a good guy. Like he's being sensitive to what she wants and Brundle is becoming inflexible on it. Kind of like the boyfriend in Black Christmas or something where he's just kind of like kind of guilt tripping her, pressuring her. I don't know that the film is taking a clear stance on that, but I think that it's interesting that someone would read it like just in a pro-life way, which I never would have thought of. Uh, probably because you're not a crazy person. <laughs> uh, no, it's so th- this is one of those subjects that I cannot help but get super pissed off. And I mean, you know, I, anyone who's listened to me on your show before or my episode on supporting characters, I get angry at a lot of things. I particularly get angry when I feel like people are unfairly describing a director as being conservative or misogynist. And that happens to Cronenberg all the time in ways that continue to surprise me. I'm sure you guys have heard or read some of the arguments about how The Brood is the most misogynistic film ever made. And like somebody I think wrote this I can't remember if it's a master's thesis or a PhD thesis that I read all of. And so I'm surprised I didn't die of a stroke. My blood pressure went up so high. But those are the kinds of things that I genuinely don't understand. Like like you were saying, I don't see how you could watch this film and think it's pro-life. Because I think it's very clear that even though Stathis is a shithead for a lot of the film... Like you said, it seems pretty clear that the only reason he wants her to get an abortion is because there's a good chance that the baby will be deformed or part fly or not because he wants to control her. And like you said, he ultimately just wants to support her and do what she wants, help her do what she wants to do. Like, I just, I, I can't even. There's that biological imperative to, uh, you know, as a man to get your DNA out into the world. And that's what it reminds me of when he is talking to Ronnie at the end. It's just like, oh, you're, you're going to get rid of me. You know, that's the only semblance of me that's left. Basically, that's my DNA. And that's the only clean copy of my DNA or half copy of my DNA that's out there. And I think that's also possibly one of the reasons why he does go off with Tawny with the woman from the bar is because of his sexual appetite, but then also because he is trying to get his DNA more out into the world and try to, you know, keep his memory alive that way. Yeah, that part is interesting to me because something that we've sort of talked about a little bit is how a lot of his male protagonists, particularly from that period, all sort of grapple with these issues of identity and their place in the world and their place as men in the world. And I love the way that throughout his career, Cronenberg kind of explores what masculinity means and the ways in which it's toxic, not just to female characters, but the ways in which it's toxic to those male characters themselves. And I think that sort of issue of procreation is nowhere more important like certainly it's important in the brood but the way that like it factors into the male characters lives i think it it, this film deals with it like the most explicitly and in the most interesting way unless i'm mistaken none of us have children so it is sort of difficult to say like well as a parent you know i totally would also want to take 
Gina Davis into the teleporter and <laughs> continue my family line. There aren't any parents in the Cronenberg heroes until uh, from after the brood up until um, History of Violence, which feels to me like one of the more impersonal films of his. I think he's deliberately not tackling that territory, and I, I, it, I we, you know, we could talk about how the, um, you know, the Chuck Pogue uh, script has the, uh, you know, him coming from a from a marriage, and you know, something like, like they, they're trying to have children in that script, you know, the Cronenberg rewrite, which makes him more of like the uh, the typical, if there is such a word, you know, typical Cronenberg hero of of uh, that whole run of films from you know Videodrome and up to. Uh, Maybe even up to Naked Lunch, which I guess is another like the next the next married hero. It's been so long since I've seen The Dead Zone. I keep trying to remember if Sarah Bracknell, if the Brooke Adams character, if she's pregnant at the end of the movie or not, because I think they get back together and have sex even though she's married. But I can't. Yeah, it's just I, I think they, so. They, they, I just no. I I, well, I maybe uh, I just watched it. I don't remember that. But oh maybe. well, then I. It's been a few years since I've watched it, so. <laughs> Your memory yeah. is the most trustworthy. This time I was watching and just thinking how you would never have that script now because the, uh, like while he's in the coma, she gets involved with, you know, marries a right wing guy. And I just feel like Cronenberg would never make a film that like had like her with a Trumpist kind of, you know, husband and have her be, you know, still read as totally sympathetic. I don't know. I think he might. I, like the dead zone is one of those films that, you know, I, I mean, We've talked about how great The Fly is, and so I think it understandably is one of his most popular and maybe kind of one of his most accessible. But I feel like The Dead Zone has all of these sort of scary topical resonances that I'm almost like I want to rewatch it because, you know, I'm writing a book on Rabid, so I've been sort of watching and rewatching a lot of his, the films from the first two decades of his career, but I'm almost afraid to because it's too real. It's great though. It's, it's interesting because it ties into Videodrome's fear of the, of the right, uh, you know, the right wing because Videodrome, you know, I, I always forget that Videodrome is about like right wing desire to like wipe out, you know, the people that have like a, an attraction to what's what's the word like transgressive art or, you know, sex and violence, yeah. you know, by like and selling these terms. like it's it's making like this this kind of commentary on on uh on the censors, you know, of Cronenberg's art. Dead Zone, I think, is the most interesting kind of forerunner to what the fly does. And I feel like a lot of the things that people like about the fly's first half. I mean, you can see him trying out those notes for the first time, really, with the the dead zone. Because I don't think, I mean, Rabbit and and the Brute have definitely have like an emotional component to them as well. The dead zone is the one where that's really takes prominence over horror in a big way, and the fly kind of carries that for at least the first half as well. I mean, to the point where a lot of people talk about it like a love story, and I, I I've. Red Cronenberg say like pro and con things about that. Like I've seen him talk about it as a love story on like the commentary track, but then I have other interviews where he says it's not a love story. It's just that that's that's just the engine to get it started, but it's really just about death and it's not a love story. So he can change his tune on what it's supposed to be depending on the context of the interview. It's his film, so I'm probably shouldn't argue with him, but it seems like a love story to me. But almost all of his films, with a few exceptions, have those sort of central love stories that drive things forward in some way. I mean, even, not to keep bringing it up, but even Rabid, it's 
like it's most definitely not a love story, but on the surface level, one of the key plot elements is two people in a couple are separated by a motorcycle accident and spend a lot of the film trying to reunite. So it it seems like that's sort of one of his kind of foundational sort of plot structures throughout all of his work. Yeah. Well, we talk about the love story in this in the Cronenberg fly. And it's uh, like, if you compare it to the fly two, which is trying to hit some similar notes, I think it's interesting that you, you jump right in to the dynamic between Goldblum and, uh, and Gina Davis. Like, you know, we, we're, we're dropped right into their first exchange dialogue wise. Like we have a lot of time with them just hanging out with those characters. And I think when you look at something like the fly two, which has all this plot that has to get out of the way first, that when you introduce those characters, uh, Daphne Zuniga and Eric Stoltz, and you try to establish a quirky romance, like actually having her catch him with a fishing line, um, <laughs> you know, that it, it feels like they don't have time to let them develop the kind of unforced quirky rapport that you have in the Cronenberg film. And it's, it's, uh, it's maybe one of the most awkward things about the sequel is like them trying to, to find that and, and, uh, and not succeeding. But I, I think it's not that he plays it like Goldblum, you know, because that's a very specific kind of persona. I don't know. I mean, that's the, the, the thing that I, you know, that is so fun about that first half hour or so of the, of the Cronenberg fly is that is, you know, the, uh, the romantic comedy banter that they have and that, and that, uh, dynamic. I, it always makes me a little bit sad whenever I rewatch it that I, you know, that they don't get to have that for <laughs> the entire film, but you know, it wouldn't be much drama if that was the case. I love that scene so much when they have that exchange where she talks about taking a vacation and and he says are we having a romance it's like ah and that's the end of it that i mean that is the end of the happiness right there because after that then it's the whole you know i have uh have to scrape off the uh the 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 remainder of this relationship like it's a a, a stain on our shoe or something that's when he goes through the teleportation machine the first time that's when he is put into doubt and monologuing to the baboon the way the film sort of explores that kind of like fundamental insecurity and you don't necessarily, at least like the way I feel about it is you don't necessarily get the sense that he's insecure because he's awkward or he's insecure because maybe this is his first girlfriend, but it just is such a fundamental human thing is, you know, the first time you're sort of confronted with the idea of your new partner's past life. It's so hard to escape those feelings of like, well, do they want to go back to that person? And what are they doing when they're not with me? And his response to just sort of get drunk and then do something (laughs) dramatic. It's so natural. But he still videotapes it for her. Like, he's not that mad that he's going to screw up her research. He's just, like, you know, venting a little bit. My interpretation is that he wants to do something dramatic so that he'll impress her. You know, okay, you're going to go off and (laughs) there's that great line about, like, under the desk of the editor. Uh, so it's like, okay, maybe you're going to go off and sleep with your ex-boyfriend one last time. Well, he hasn't discovered a way to teleport living matter. And so I'm going to go complete that experiment right now. And I'm going to tape it for you. It's, it's like such a sad, sweet moment. It just, it's so Cronenberg. It's so mean. 
I don't know if it was intentional or not, but like one of the archetypal 80s romantic comedies, um, say anything, repurposes dialogue like from when she comes back and like that uh, line, like, if I didn't share it with you, it's like it didn't really happen, I think is how they say it and say anything. But it's like the same idea that that bond, you know, it's it is, you know, very much like a romance film in those moments. Even in that moment where no matter how many times I watch the film, it still sort of makes me like tear up a little that part where he says, you know, I'm an insect who dreamed he was a man. It's the most gutting line in it's certainly I mean, Cronenberg has a lot of those sort of devastating romantic moments, but it's up there. It makes it clear that being with her was such a crucial part of what he misses about being himself, about being his human self. It's beautiful. We were talking about bits that were cut out of the film and why that was a good thing. And I think, again, it was a good thing that he doesn't leave the lair very often, that he is mostly in that place. You know, we, we, Talked about how he doesn't really have a lot of friends on the outside world and that he has no real reason to leave the place. So when he is, is struck by this, you know, this tragedy that he ends up being stuck there even more, it makes it more dramatic when he's outside. You know, it makes it more dramatic when he goes to that bar and it makes it much more dramatic when he ends up crashing through the glass to quote unquote save Ronnie or to kidnap Ronnie at the end. I mean, that is really shocking because we don't necessarily expect, like we saw him listening to their conversation to Stathis and Ronnie's conversation from the roof, but that's pretty much the only place that we've seen him outside of the lair to that point, you know, once he becomes Brundlefly. So it, it, it makes it even more shocking when he bursts through that glass and comes in and takes her away. I know that the original film gets compared to the Phantom of the Opera sometimes because of like the unmasking scene and whatnot. And I think the scene where he's watching them from above listening in on that conversation feels to me like the most Phantom of the Opera-ish moment in the Cronenberg version. But when he breaks through and and kidnaps Ronnie, I mean, that does feel like the most old-fashioned monster movie part of the whole film. Like it's very Creature from the Black Lagoon, very King Kong kind of moment. I almost wonder if he was self-conscious about that because I don't think of old-fashioned monster movie mayhem and Cronenberg in the same sentence very often. It's the one time that it really seems to be closer to the horror film that people might have thought they were getting when they bought a ticket to this. Yeah, I agree that it seems intentional. And I mean, I also am operating from this very sort of biased standpoint where I think he, everything he does is intentional and he knows what he's doing, but uh, you know, which obviously can't be true, but I think with sort of genre strokes like that, it must be. I mean, there there are definitely similar sorts of scenes in Rabid that are kind of meant to ape the earlier zombie films or put a twist on the earlier zombie films that seem so self-conscious. And that particular moment is just so dramatic with like the glass and the score that I feel like Cronenberg was kind of having some fun. He could have found probably a more subtle way to get her to come back to the the Brundle lair. I think it's also supposed to be a joke, and I didn't really catch this until I was listening to the commentary. The gun that Stathis brings 
to the lair when he is now tracking Ronnie down and going to take her back from Brundlefly at the end. I guess that's not an appropriate gun. I don't know anything about guns, so he was just like, oh yeah, yeah, you wouldn't use a gun like that. I was just like, okay. <laughs> I don't know if it's like for shooting skeet or something, but I was like, okay, whatever. But it's it works. It's effective. Um, well, it's a rifle, isn't it? Sure. It would make more sense to use like something meant for short range maybe is what he meant or like a shotgun versus this sort of like it also it seems like such a status thing sort of to bill's point earlier about this whole exploration of class like it seems like status would not be the type of person to own a handgun for self-defense but would instead own an expensive hunting rifle that he only uses on these like sort of trips that are you know not meant for anything practical right if you get what i'm saying he's a big game hunter (laughs) or even just like somebody who does it for the sake of vanity so he's he's not like a ted nugent hunter like he's not bringing (laughs) home deer and making his own venison i'm thinking like an eric trump hunter uh 100 percent I thought you were going to say that you never bring a gun to a vomit fight. So speaking of Cronenberg having fun, the scene a little bit earlier than the actual vomit fight, when Veronica comes back to to his loft and he throws up the first time in front of her and he says, that's disgusting. It's just, it's so funny. Because I was looking at the gross out moments in this film because they're kind of few and far between, especially at the beginning. Like, the, we get the, the baboon, the turned inside out baboon, which is our first real, oh my god, we are playing for serious in this movie. And then we get a couple other gross outs here and there, like the, the fingernails, those kind of things. But really, we get like such a, 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 a triple header when it comes to him throwing up his ear falling off, and then her hugging him where the ear was. The entire audience, when I saw it, went fucking crazy. Uh, it's so good. I mean, it's. I think vomit is one of those things that is a really uncharted territory in genre cinema because, you know, there's, of course, all sorts of blood in every kind of horror movie for the most part maybe aside from like a ghost story or psychological horror but i love the way that cronenberg just always has to up the ante a little bit or a lot a bit in this case and (laughs) has multiple scenes of vomiting this film is there's only a few moments that feel like they're meant to be quote-unquote scary but there's a lot of moments that feel like they're meant to be gross you know, and, and, and shocking just in, you know, with the body horror. And I, the, the ear stuff is, is the, is the saddest because, it, because his reaction to it is, is so heartbreaking. Um, that it's, it's the played the most like, like how it would really feel to lose your ear. I like the way he handles those sorts of bodily scenes between the two of them because, I mean, you even get that early scene where, they're having sex and she feels the sort of like fly hairs on his back. They've only, I think at this point in the film, they haven't been together for that long. And she sort of takes it upon herself to like go get some clippers and like clip his back hair (laughs) in such, it's kind of like a, it's kind of gross and maybe a little bit like pushy, 
on her part. I mean, later on, he has that great line where he says, like, I live with my mother, too. <laughs> but but it's also kind of sweet, intimate moment in a way. Like, there's just no, there are very few sort of, like, barriers between them. Like, they establish intimacy so quickly, but maybe because they were together in real life, but in a way that feels very believable to me. Vomit aside. Although sometimes you vomit in front of the people you love. It, it happens. Yeah. I'd hold your hair back. Thank you. No problem. <laughs> I'll, try not, I'll, try not to, I'll try not to vomit on anyone's hand and melt it off. The end of this movie is just such a, uh, a tour de force of the effects and all of these things, all of these things. I mean, the, the way that he wants to merge them all together, merge him and Ronnie and the baby all into one being. And you kind of, at least me, I kind of want to see what that's going to look like. I don't know if that's just me or not. No, me too. I yeah I just I I really I'm interested in what that nuclear family is going to look like. I mean I guess and the pet fly would go along with that. Well, of course, on like a cute little leash or something. Not a fishing pole. Maybe on a tiny fishing pole. And then when he he gets merged with the actual pod itself, and you see all those wires and stuff, I am totally thinking of James Woods's arm from the end of Videodrome, and the way that the gun has merged with his arm. It just that man machine look is such a Cronenberg thing. And he does it so well that even though it gets repeated in different ways throughout his films, it never feels old. Like. I never, no matter how many times I watch them, I don't think like, oh God, well, here's this again. This time I was thinking like how that, uh, what is it, like a computer chip or something that gets caught in his back? Like yeah. how, that foresh- how that foreshadows like his merging with flesh and technology, like that would be the first indication of where we're going and how it is perfect how the fly hair grows out of that, you know, that that uh, encounter with technology against his flesh. It's such kind of an unexpectedly gross scene. Certainly, it's nowhere near on the level of, say, the last 20 minutes of the film. But, I mean, everybody's sort of accidentally, like, rolled over on something or stepped on or sat down on something. But just the way that the computer chip really gets, like, stuck into his back and you you have that close-up of her, like, prying it out of his flesh... (laughs) Okay, so it wasn't her fingernails, it was that computer chip, that's right. It seems also kind of unclear why there's a computer chip (laughs) in bed and no one noticed it. (laughs) I think that's meant to be like an absent-minded professor touch. (laughs) Not only are we dealing with, uh, with, with addiction and disease and abortion in this movie, but we also end with euthanasia, and I really kind of appreciate that too, that there's enough of Brundle left in there, in that full fly to want to have Ronnie kill him at the end. It's such a sad moment. And it also kind of makes me think of something like American Werewolf in London, where you have that sort of showdown between the two lovers, where the woman is seeing the man in this sort of monstrous form. And in that movie, he's shot down by the police, right? That just feels kind of uh, cheap to me, maybe. Like, I much prefer this version where... It's so much more intimate and so much more tragic, but it feels like the only two possible inevitable conclusions would be they get into the teleporter together or she kills him. Yeah, it's it's much more personal that she's the one that pulls that trigger. And it's so sad. 
it also resonates with the uh you know the earlier versions of the story because you know, but but in a more dramatic way because you know i mean you know the wife kills the fly in the short story in the the original film but the there's no there's no suspense about like i mean that's where we lead with so there's never it doesn't build towards anything as dramatic and moving as the cronenberg way of telling that story well it's interesting because i think that original movie sort of takes this almost kind of like film noir angle and looks at the aftermath of a grisly crime rather than the lead up to the crime. And so, I mean, I definitely prefer the Cronenberg film, but I also really like that angle where it says, okay, here's this seemingly normal woman in a seemingly happy marriage. How could she possibly do this really dramatically violent thing? And a lot of the narrative is sort of meant to make you question her sanity. They kind of weigh the idea of sending her to an asylum, you know, until she's basically tricked into telling the whole story. But this, it just like that definitely feels tragic, but no, I mean, nowhere on this level. I thought it was interesting that was it, is it David Huang, the guy that wrote M. Butterfly? Like when he wrote the opera version of Cronenberg's fly, like the uh, story, like they bring it back to that, like the, uh, you know, the woman's, the traumatized account of what happened from the woman to the police. Like it, it goes back to that old structure, um, which I thought was a, an interesting choice, you know, rather than to, to bring us in, you know, with the characters in the present tense, the way that Cronenberg does. Well, and a lot of it is in the short story, you're reading her confession. It kind of reminds me, we were talking a few months ago about Fiend Without a Face and the way that so much of that is a story that's being told by someone's confession. And, um, it's also, I don't remember the original film that much, but in the, in the short story, after the detective and the uh, brother-in-law are done reading the story. They basically confirm that she had killed herself after she handed over the confession. I don't know if the wife kills herself in the, in the movie or not. She does not. I imagine that that could have worked well in the film, but because of the production code, I don't think they could make a film where she had a justifiable reason for killing him and then committed suicide. It's like they tried to tap dance away from suicide as often as possible. I am glad that they ended this movie where they ended it. I've seen quite a few alternate endings of this film, and I'm glad that they stopped it where they did. Um, some of those alternate endings are interesting, but I think ultimately it's successful that they just have her kill him, have that great headshot, and then pretty much cut to credits right away, that there's no coda to this movie. I appreciate that in general about Cronenberg's films because I, I find it. And so I don't actually have a problem with, I, I generally hate remakes. I don't really have a problem with sequels, but I really dislike that sort of convention of ending genre films with this, like, maybe he'll be back. Like it just, it's like, fine, find a reason to bring him back in the second movie, but like, I'll let the story end. Cronenberg in the 80s, so many of his films, they had to find their endings, you know, uh, like they didn't, they didn't arrive with the endings that were in the screenplay. Like I think Scanners maybe was shut down. Um, while they tried to figure out the ending Videodrome, they had to figure out the ending like on the set. Um, the Dead Zone has the, almost the exact same ending as The Fly, where they had tried different codas with The Fly. And I know they had tried at least one coda with The Dead Zone, but ultimately just decided that the, 
the film needed to end it on that like tragic note of finality, like that there was no going back to something else, like emo- emotionally nothing else quite fit or worked. But I thought I mean, it's just so interesting that like he was still that comfortable finding the process. Like I know he's somebody that doesn't storyboard, like he prefers to go to the location uh, and compose the shots, you know, with the actors on set. Like there's not like that sense of pre-planning that you would have with someone like a De Palma or a Scorsese or like somebody that you know, thinks about the, the images like in, in like such an organized way. Like he finds the shots as he goes, um, like on the, in the moment. But like the fact that he's that willing to trust that the process will bring him to the right ending and not have that, kind of at the ready when they start rolling i i you know i i find so interesting that like they can develop that way and the fly i think yeah you know, i i think that the um like some of the alternate endings like the, the butterfly channel things like they're interesting in theory that like they could try that but I, I i agree with his choice to go uh and end it where they do yeah that butterfly child it's an interesting idea but ultimately i don't think it would have been successful just because of the limitations of the um the stop motion animation that they were using. I mean, here in 2019, I'm just like, I don't know. I mean, it might've been kind of quaint, but in, I guess it was in her dream. So that could have worked out all right, but I don't know. A lot of it, the, the whole idea of the baby sprouting wings or having wings, it reminded me of splice. And I think that splice would be a good double feature with this movie because of the way that, DNA is being played with and it's kind of an updating in that case I think more of a like a Frankenstein story than necessarily the fly story that's kind of where dead ringers comes in because to me it's a Frankenstein story and so I guess that's why I kind of see them as being sort of counterpart films in a weird way dead ringers I was only able to handle one time I haven't gone back and watched that again it's sort of the cinematic equivalent of like Climbing onto the roof of your house, jumping into the middle of the street, and then letting someone run over you. <laughs> and I say this as a person who, like I said earlier, it, I consider it my favorite Cronenberg film, but it is rough. So we talk about Frankenstein. I'm trying to remember he had a Frankenstein project set up. I maybe at Universal. Like I don't know what David Cronenberg's Frankenstein was supposed to be, and I don't know if any elements from it wound up in other things he did make, but. Um, he was, he did develop Frankenstein as a, uh, as a project at one point. And if we talk about the metamorphosis, I know that, um, that some of those resonances are intentional. And, um, I think that's actually one of the most famous stories that David Lynch wrote a screenplay for that never got filmed. The metamorphosis? Um, mm-hmm, the yeah. Kafka, yeah. It's funny because there's an edition of, uh, there's like a Kafka story collection where, I think it actually maybe just might be a chapbook for the metamorphosis, but Cronenberg wrote an introduction to it. So, I mean, it obviously is something that was on his mind. All right, guys, we're going to take a break and play a pair of interviews. The first is with author Emma Westwood, who wrote the Devil's Advocates book on the fly. The second is with The Fly's producer, Stuart Kornfeld. And we'll be back with both of those right after these brief messages.
Attention, attention. Are you a fan of MASH, one of the most groundbreaking television series in history? Then take a listen to the MASH 4077 podcast, where hosts Kenny, Simon, and Al discuss their thoughts episode by episode. They will also share with you some little-known behind-the-scenes information, trivia, and so much more. So come and find them on iTunes by searching MASH 4077 podcast or online at www.mash4077podcast.com. is Carl Kolchak. He's a reporter. Now that is news, Vincenzo. News! And we are a news paper. We are supposed to print news, not suppress it! With the INS. What's an INS? Independent News Servicer, founded in 1904 by Enrico Peluzzi. Who seems to have a nose for the strange and unusual. Well, last year in Las Vegas, I uncovered a series of murders that turned out to have been committed by a vampire. And what is the Kolchak Tapes? It's a podcast all about Carl Kolchak. What's a Kolchak? The Night Stalker. And where can you get it? On iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and at www.kolchaktapes.com. As foolish a game as any that Gordy the Ghoul could make up. I'm Dave Hunt, and I'm one of the co-hosts for Super True Stories, a podcast where two guys suffer through and report back on some of the worst documentaries you can stream for free. I'm Axel Kohagen, the other co-host. Film is a beautiful lie that teaches us about who we are on the inside. Dave and I look at the documentaries that are the ugliest of truths, teaching you about mixed martial arts and fishing, poorly faked ghost stories, and everything you wanted to know about poor production values and stock footage. Check us out on iTunes, Google Play, or at supertruestories.com. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap, either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now, I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now, isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resents at proudlyresents.com. And you are listening to my favorite, the number one, the projection booth. 
Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show, you lucky son of a gun. I want to know about you. I want to know how you got interested in film and all things movie-related. I got into it mainly through my uncle. I blame it all on him. So I think that most people who are involved in cinema, writing about cinema, I guess, cinema uh, criticism, or let's just say have a love of it, usually bring it from childhood. There's some sort of childhood experience, some sort of childhood exposure, for want of a better word, that will plant the seed. That's why I think it's great for kids to be just shown and allowed to be involved in as much stuff as possible and, and then you just see what sticks. For me, I had my 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 grandmother's house was uh, basically my home. I mean, I did have a home with my parents, but my my parents were very young, so my mother was constantly back at my grandmother's house and she would – she looked after me and my uncle, who she's, my grandmother's now passed away, but my uncle now is still in the same home that I would go to all the time when I was a, a child, when he was living with my grandmother. He's kind of like a man child. He lives with his, <laughs> his collections of CDs and vinyl and movies on both VHS and um, DVD and magazines and books. And I got to be immersed in this world. And it used to, it started off with us, um, sitting. I'd go there. Nan would complain about us, all the, the movies and the books and things and complain and say that she'd sell them behind his back at some stage. <laughs> but I would, it started off firstly with music and we would sit there. I would literally sit on his bed and he would sit on the floor and we would listen to an album from start to finish. And we talk about it after we'd listen to the album. And I can't think of anyone who really listens to a, an album in that way anymore. Uh, unfortunately, I think it's uh, a lost art. We're always listening to music when we're doing something else, whether it's cooking or, you know, driving the car or something like that. So it started with that that love of music and then it sort of moved into movies. I think as I started to get older because – Obviously, there's a limitation on the kind of content you can show a kid. You know, you have you have to get a bit older to understand certain concepts. But he never seemed to have a problem sort of right from the when I was about 12, 13, even 11, I'd say, of showing me horror movies. It was fine as long as they didn't have a, a sexual horror element. I think he felt that was a bit warped. So even when something like, Blue Velvet came out, David Lynch's Blue Velvet. I was about 15 and my uncle refused to show me. But then I just asked my mother to rent it for me and she was none the wiser. So <laughs> I got to see it at the time anyway. I would go around to Nan's place and Ross and I would have these midnight movie marathons and just start exploring exploring cinema. And I think I was actually, he was exploring it at the same time as me because this is the start of the VHS generation. And um, for him, he wouldn't have had as readily, ready access to films before then, similar to other people, apart from going to the cinema or there were a couple of stations on, on TV that would do all night marathons. But this was the, the time where he got to take ownership of his own 
film discovery and got to take me along for the ride. And I think it's just, well, you know, it's just continued on with DVD now, the, the, the kinds of avenues you can go down in, in looking for films and searching out films now is, is endless. We've got, we can tap into so much these days. So that, that was where the interest started, let's say. Tell me about your interest in The Fly. The Fly was at, at a time when I shouldn't have been seeing it, let's say, but that was always the, the thrill as well. I mean, I think there's nothing more exciting. I wouldn't, I wouldn't call myself much of a thrill seeker or an adrenaline seeker in any other way. I've always got it through my art and to be able to see cinema that I wasn't meant to be seeing was really, really exciting. And The Fly was, Fly was one of those films. I do remember, I think I saw it on VHS first, but I do remember actually getting to see it at a cinema that's in Melbourne. It's still in Melbourne. It's called the Astor Theatre and they play classic movies or they play movies a little bit, a little bit after their cinema run. So I think it might have been a year or so after the film came out and they played double, uh, double features. It poss- possibly was a double feature with aliens, if I remember correctly. The fly just at that time, I think the visceral concepts and the look, the, 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 the special effects, shall we say, of the fly were what really grabbed me. As a kid, films grabbed me for different reasons. Although it's interesting to say that, uh, to note that films, uh, that I loved as a kid, that I may have got interested in for a certain thing, the gore factor or the, the a surprise or horror element that have stuck with me for different reasons. The Fly is one of those films. So with the visceral gore stuff, I took my father to see it with me at the Astor Theatre and he was appalled, but he, he was ter- genuinely terrified and appalled by it and I loved that experience. I think there was a thing, there's a thing where as a kid, you just love scaring or upsetting your parents in some way. And watching his face when that arm wrestling scene, when George Cavalis, yeah, actually breaks the, 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 his wrist or, you know, um, the, the Brundle fly, Seth Brundle breaks his wrist, wrist and watching my dad's face. I got, I got a huge thrill out of that as well. So there was something about the operatic aspects of the fly, the music, the visual effects that really got me then. And then it's a film because it's, you know, this is what I think is a strength of the film. It's a film that over time and as I matured and as I got o- older, I got to see the other aspects as well and how uh, it works on so many different levels. So it's a film that I've been able to watch over and over and over again and get more out of it each time. How did you come to write the Devil's Advocate book about it? I was at a a nice little social function with Alexandra Helen Nicholas, uh, who you know from Melbourne. Alex had just written uh, Suspiria, her book on Suspiria for um, for Devil's Advocate's range. And I'd written a book about Actually, it was my first book was 11 years ago. So it's been a little, little while between drinks. That book was called Monster Movies and it was a compendium book. So it was more like a, a little guidebook to monster movies and to, you know, start, start for people to start a journey and to sort of continue through. 
I hadn't been keen to jump on another book. I found the writing of my first book quite an exhausting exercise and it was also during I think quite a long period of my life. So I needed a little while but I, I just got to the point where I thought, you know, I've got that desire again. I've got that hunger. I've got that hunger to put myself through hell for no money. <laughs> that's what that's what writing a book is. So I said to Alex, you know, what were your experiences writing Suspiria? And we talked through it and she seemed to have only very positive experiences working with John Atkinson, who's at the helm of the Devil's Advocates imprint. And she said, how about I introduce you to John and you have a talk to him about writing another book? And I said, that would be great. And she said, look, it's, you know, they're not too heavy duty in terms of you're not writing 100,000 words. I love the idea of writing a monograph that you could just, there's something incredibly luxurious about being able to wallow in the world of one film for 35,000 plus words. <laughs> and um, so she, she facilitated an introduction and we just started, I basically put forward films that I'd be interested in talking about. And he honed it down to David Cronenberg. He said, I want something. I've wanted something on David Cronenberg for a while now. And I had two on my list. I had The Brood and I had The Fly. So he said, I'm, I'm really happy to go with either. It's up to you. And I kind of thought that The Fly probably was the better film to do, just even in terms of Cronenberg's career, not because it's a better film than The Brood. I wouldn't say that. It's a very different film, but I like the way it sits in Cronenberg's career. And I thought it had it warranted a monograph on it. And I'm pretty happy that I chose that one because I noticed that Neil Snowden's The Electric Dreamland uh, series is doing is doing The Brood. So The Brood has already been, it's got cover art and everything. So um, I'm lucky that otherwise there could have been two Brood books coming out at the same time. Let's just say. <laughs> The fly isn't just the fly, though. The fly has so many other aspects to it, and you dive into that in your book. You've got the short story, you've got the original movie, you've got the two sequels, you've got the sequel to the fly. I mean, how did you decide, all right, I'm going to have to write about all this stuff rather than just focusing on Cronenberg's The Fly? When I was initially writing it, I thought about keeping it very focused on the remake, and then I... I I just, you know, had a wake-up call, basically an internal wake-up call and went, Emma, what are you doing? You can't – there's no way you could write about this film. First, first of all, with it being a remake without writing about the original film. I didn't want it to be about the original film. I had to try and get it nicely weighted. So we were still writing – this book is still about Cronenberg's The Fly. I, I still want the readers to feel that when they, they've read the book – they've read about Cronenberg's The Fly. So I ended up, I basically thought the linchpin for David Cronenberg was being able to uh, to tap into this idea of DNA with the remake of The Fly, if you know what I mean, because DNA wasn't around at the time that Kurt Newman was directing uh, well, DNA was around, but DNA was known about at the time that he was directing the the original fly. So I like that this was that was the 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 point that really sold Cronenberg on um, 
on doing the fly, doing the metamorphosis, this idea of DNA, this idea of gradual change. So I thought, well, let's make my whole book about that. It's about the DNA of this film. It's about getting into what is this film's lineage? What, where did it come from? What is its ancestry? Let's do a saliva test on this and let's see what, what we come, we come up with. Because there's something about the remake, Cronenberg's remake, that is, it's such a, it feels, it's, it's such a clear sighted, simple film, I will say. Yet it's got all these complexities behind it and they all come with this massive story behind the fly. They, they, and not just the making of the Cronenberg film, but the genesis of the idea and how that came about. And even the George Langland short story, which was the, you know, published in Playboy and was a very popular short story, which then, uh, spurred on Fox to start the, uh, to actually make the original production, the 1958 version of The Fly. Um, George Langland's story of being, uh, a prisoner of war, of actually having to have plastic surgery so he could spy effectively as part of intelligence during World War II. That story, he actually imbues that whole metamorphosis aspect in his own personal story. So it's amazing that he then would, you know, reinterpret it in this way as, in, as the short story of the fly. What was your history with the original fly film? Did, had you seen that before this? I hadn't seen it until later on. I had seen it before I decided to write this book. But my experience with The Fly as a as a kid was Cronenberg's The Fly. So when I got to see the original film, I liked it, but it didn't have the punch that um, the Cronenberg film had to me. And I can imagine that for someone who first saw um, The Fly with Vincent Price, um, in 1958 and this whole concept of a man and a fly being merged in as one, I can imagine that it would have been incredibly shocking. But I never got to experience the original film as intended, shall I say, only because of when I was born and what I was exposed to. But, yes, I have seen the film. It's amazing to me to read your book and realize that this did not come from Cronenberg. The whole idea of him doing this movie was not necessarily his idea. That was really relevatory. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? And that's why I also decided to focus on Cronenberg's career in the book leading up to The Fly. I didn't go past it, but I felt that there was something about The Fly that is, um, it feels like the culmination of all his work leading up to that point it almost feels like even though it's the fly is still in the early part of Cronenberg, Cronenberg's career, I mean, for all intents and purposes, he is still a working filmmaker. He hasn't had a film for a while, but he is a working filmmaker now, so he's not at the end of his career. It feels like the fly is the midway point in his career. It changed after that, and he seemed to go in different directions. I felt that you can chart those, you can move through those early films and see how they all informed the fly. But, but yeah, it's, it's absolutely incredible to think that he wasn't the person who decided to remake the film and it was really others 
that saw the idea, the idea of the metamorphosis as well, and that Cronenberg, but also identified that Cronenberg was the person to do it. And talking to Stuart Kornfeld, who was the producer of The Fly, he was a very generous interviewee and he spoke to me for a long time and gave me a lot of very interesting stories. And he said that Cronenberg was always the director he wanted to make the film. He had to go in a different direction because Cronenberg had been contracted on to make Total Recall with De Laurentiis, uh, which obviously he didn't get, he didn't make in the end. Uh, as we know, Paul Verhoeven made that in the end. And so the fly had this uh, sort of circuitous journey to Cronenberg. It, it was meant for him originally. It went to a, another filmmaker who unfortunately couldn't make it in the end through um, personal tragedy. And then it came back to Cronenberg serendipitously at just the right time for him to make it. Stuart Kornfeld made a point of saying that Cronenberg, he did rewrite Chuck Pogue's original screenplay. When I say original screenplay, I mean original screenplay for the remake. So Chuck Pogue was the one who was tasked with the job of reconceiving the remake of The Fly. David Cronenberg did extensively rewrite it. I have read Chuck Pogue's version of the screenplay as well. He readily acknowledged that he wouldn't have been interested, Cronenberg wouldn't have been interested in the pro- um, in the project of The Fly except for, for what Charles Pogue brought to it. So Charles Pogue, cronenberg defied it, if you know what I mean. So he was able to dangle the carrot that interested Cronenberg. And hence, from that, Cronenberg put forward to the Writers Guild, and I didn't realise this, but apparently in for writing credits, you have to put forward who should get a credit and why. For example, I came up with the DNA idea, therefore I should get this, this credit, you know, a higher credit, a higher writing credit or a co-writing credit or whatever. Cronenberg actively put forward Charles Edward Pogue and said, I want an equal credit with him because I would not have got to this film without what he did. And he did that without ever having met Charles Pogue as well. Stuart Kornfeld said to me in all his years of producing, and he's gone on to produce a number of films. He's now read our films with um, Ben Stiller. That's his company. He said he has never seen a director, a writer-director, put forward another writer in the way David Cronenberg did and recommend him. He said he's an utter mensch. That was what his, his way of describing him was. It, he only talked about him in very high regard and particularly in, in, in that way. He said that's something people don't realise, that he was willing to share that credit. Did you get a chance to talk to Charles Edward Polk? Yes, I did. And he's, uh, he's a great man. He's, uh, very interesting, very grateful for the experiences of the fly, really appreciative of what David Cronenberg did on the film, even though he's kind of got that strange, exp- he said, he, he called it his tombstone film. He said, I've, I've, I realize that that is always going to be, that is going to be my tombstone film. Uh, yes, Cronenberg turned it into something that was completely Cronenberg. But although people always talk about it, or it's always talked about in terms of how it was completely rewritten, I can see much more of Pogue's 
script in there, then I think that people give it credit for, to be totally honest. Well, that was one thing I really appreciated about your book was going back to the screenplay and making those comparisons between what we saw, what was in Pogue's screenplay, how some of those lines moved around and what dialogue and actions came directly from his original draft. Yeah, I found it interesting to do that as well. And I think that he said that he had um, the the couple as such. He mirrored – you can see – basically you can see the way his, his screenplay is, a, is the midpoint from the original – the original 1958 version to what Cronenberg got to. You can see how he's combined Pogue brought elements of the original version um, into a Cronenberg-like version and then Cronenberg changed it into something that was even more Cronenberg. So you can see the development of it, if you know what I mean, from, from the original 1958 film to Charles Pogue's version of it to then David Cronenberg. So, for instance, Poe kept the the husband-wife dynamic because he decided that a girlfriend or a more casual partner wouldn't stick around for what ends up happening. So he felt like he needed the marital tie for the, the female character to stay with him through this horrible, horrible monstrification of him. David Cronenberg, in doing away with that, still managed to to sell it, and you could, and for a number of reasons. First of all, she was a journalist, so she's going to have the just the natural professional curiosity. But also, he he manages to completely isolate her as a character in his film. You notice she has no friends or family. And that's the only reason why I think that we really accept that she'd go back to John Getz's character of Stathis Borens and look to him for solace because he's a creep, really. <laughs> so, you know, I can see why Charles Pogue made certain decisions, but then I, I love the way that, that Cronenberg was able to um, be inspired by his ideas and make it into something else, make it into what it was, which I think is actually the perfect screenplay. Where in the world did a name like Stathis Borens come from? It was apparently from um, a judge. This is what I was told. John Getz told me I had some conflicting information. I, I read that it was a judge that uh, like literally a legal, someone who gives legal counsel, uh, a judge in a court of law that I don't know whether um, Cronenberg knew personally or uh, had come across the name and decided to use it. But then I think I th- I'm pretty sure it was John Getz who told me that he, he was an old family friend or a friend of um, Cronenberg's and he didn't mention the judge, him being a judge or whatnot. So it's someone who did come from Cronenberg's world though, and which he has a tendency to do. He does pepper his films with the names of or uses names of um, people or things that have some interest to, uh, to him in some way. I was really glad too when you brought up the whole idea of Veronica, the Gina Davis character, having the preferred vision in the film and her being the one to hold the camera and hold the camera on Seth. I thought that was really good as far as the whole idea of the, uh, uh, the, the, the Laura Mulvey type of, you know, preferential gaze and actually giving that to our female character. 
Yeah, yeah, especially with um, Cronenberg because I think Cronenberg's been accused a lot of being uh, misogynistic in his filmmaking uh, or, uh, you know, there's been uh, – have you have you read Barbara Creed's book, um, The Monstrous Feminine, when she talks about the brood? Yeah. Um, I don't actually – out Barbara Creed, local Melbourne girl, another um, – yes, another Melbourne person. I've actually spoken on a panel with Barbara. And she's, I don't necessarily agree with the way she interpreted um, The Brood, but I think that there's a lot of in Cronenberg. I think Cronenberg is very much aware of his masculinity and his male gaze as such, but I think he's incredibly fascinated by the difference of women and I think we get that come out in Fascinated and probably even afraid in some ways, but I think we get that come out in something like Dead Ringers as an atheist and in playing, in, in playing with these ideas, these ideas of man, man as God. Uh, I think Cronenberg really venerates or presents this veneration of the idea of women, women can give birth, women can create in the way that men can't create. So when you see a scientist, you know, the Frankenstein myth, the idea of trying to create life, men trying to create life, is like these flailing attempts at, at men, smart men, academic men, trying to be women, essentially. And for, for Cronenberg to give her the curiosity in the film, her the, journal, the journalistic authority as well to say, I'm going to document this. Let's, let's see what this guy's going to be able to do. I thought it was a really clever trick. And as you pointed out, you know, her holding the camera. So straight away, it becomes this interpretation of a female gaze via a male director. Um, uh, this is, uh, you know, playing with the meta element of it, you know, uh, and we, the audience, also become her. So uh, suddenly the audience is feminized. We're all Veronica in this film. We're watching it all from Veronica's point of view, basically. I had never really thought about this film in terms of the uh, the other film, The Four-Sided Triangle, and I was Really glad that you brought that up. And especially, you know, just to think about love triangles and just that weird way that you have the love triangle with our three main leads. But then you can also say that Jeff Goldblum is basically playing two people. So there's a love triangle between Brundle, Brundlefly, and then Veronica as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, The Four Sided Triangles is a, re- a really interesting film. And I think. What I like about that, and I would have liked to have even gone and delved a little bit further into that, but um, as I was saying earlier, 35,000 words, it seems like a lot of words, but, you know, really you can't, uh, you can't squash everything into, <laughs> into that, uh, especially with something when you're talking about things that involve, you know, Frankenstein, the Frankenstein story and the Frankenstein legacy. But The Four-Sided Triangle is a film that predates even the, the original fly quite significantly. It's not talked about that much. It's really one of Hammer's forgotten early sci-fi films, uh, just one of these little curios. And I think that we, we it, there's a temptation just to say, hey, the fly has created this scenario. But really, the, it was the, the four-sided triangle that started it. 
its monster is a very different concept of a monster. But I think that that film creates a monster as well because often our monsters, like in The Fly, like in Frankenstein, even if our monsters harm, our monsters are often pathetic creatures because they haven't asked to be brought into this world. They're of something else. They've been brought in against their will. So they're often very sympathetic characters. And this is a highly sympathetic monster in the four-sided triangle. I don't know whether I should say much about the storyline, Mike, because I'm wanting people to see it if they haven't seen this film. Jeff Goldblum these days is a cultural phenomenon. You know, Jeff Goldblum <laughs> reading his own tweets. Jeff Goldblum, and these are thirst, thirst tweets. I would let Jeff Goldblum... Redacted, my redacted. You have to fill in your own redact- redactions. I would love God, but I'm, I'm thinking of something. I would love Jeff Goldblum. Wow. And Jeff Goldblum <laughs> at this point was not the Jeff Goldblum we know today. And my God, to go through that amazing transformation. I mean, I've got mm. love Ian Malcolm. And he, he's hot as hell when he's there in his leather coat without his, his shirt on and stuff. But Goldblum is looking fine in this movie. I think it's great that uh, Jeff Goldblum has been able to mutate his career into just being Jeff Goldblum now. He's he's celebrated for being Jeff Goldblum and he's cashing in on it. Fantastic. I don't blame him. And he's looking good. You know, he is looking good as, a, you know, an older man, shall we say. But I think The Fly is the, his pinnacle role. I think that is... You know, as it's a, a it's a tombstone film for Charles Edward Pogue. It's it's uh, one of its its co-writer. It's a tombstone film for Jeff Goldblum as well. And that's a film where I think that he really did deserve to be more highly awarded for. Other actors turned it down because of the the makeup work that they wouldn't put themselves through that. And it takes someone. It takes a brave actor to do that. No one wants to lose their performance behind makeup or feel like they're not going to be recognised. You've got to remember an actor's ego too. They're going to be, want to be recognised. Yet there was a really good benchmark before The Fly by the same producer, Stuart Kornfeld, with the same um, production money uh, put in by Mel Brooks which was The Elephant Man, uh, David Lynch's The Elephant Man. And that was a, a highly regarded film. And the performance by John Hurt was, uh, you know, really highly acclaimed. Yet still, actors were too scared to take on the role of the fly. I had, um, I think it was um, John Malkovich was approached, one of the ones who was approached, if I'm casting my mind back. And also... I believe I read somewhere that John Lithgow was approached, but I think that um, Jeff Goldblum was the was the natural fit. He wasn't he wasn't the choice of the the head of studio at Fox, but Stuart Kornfeld told me that when Kornfeld and Cronenberg said they wanted Jeff Goldblum, uh, the head of studio said, "Look, uh, I think you're making a terrible mistake, but this is your mistake to make." and actually allowed them to do it. And Kornfeld told me that would not happen in Hollywood in this day and age, and it very rarely happened even back then. A head of studio, if they didn't like someone, they would usually say, okay, you're not going to have them. But they got Goldblum and, and the gamble paid off. Well, he's got that awesome stutter and twitchiness and all that that just plays into Brundlefly so well. 
Yeah, they could somehow see the eccentricities. I mean, he played a lot of smaller roles in that time. And I think that Cronenberg had had direct contact with him with um, Into the Night. And Cronenberg had, a, I think, a cameo. I don't even know if it was credited. But he so he'd worked with um he'd worked with Jeff Goldblum before and obviously saw something in him. Uh the Gina Davis thing was well she was she was going out with um Jeff Goldblum at the time but they said that once they got her to read for it they just felt that there was no one else that would be right for that role. It all sort of came together. It was a film that actually had a very difficult time coming together I guess it's not a, an, a, an unusual story in Hollywood to you know or any film production they usually they're usually rocky but once all the components started falling into place they fell into place very very nicely I wonder what it was about 1986 I mean you mentioned that this played a double feature with aliens and between Veronica and Ripley I mean those are two really kick-ass female characters yeah, and they're both they're both 20th Century Fox films as well. You no doubt would have noticed in the book we talk a bit about the box office at the time that Fox was not doing was not doing very well. I don't think Fox had a lot of faith in the fly doing as well as it did. So made the mistake of actually releasing it only a few weeks out from Aliens. So in some ways they cannibalized their own market. And it would have been a time where those two films could have done even better if they had been separated out or done better for the studio and possibly did better box office-wise. You've got to think about people are probably not like you and me, Mike, and go to the movies all the time. So they may be a bit more selective about what they want, they want to watch or how they spend their money. But, yeah, it was definitely um, an interesting time to see that these are two strong women characters, even though Gina Davis as Veronica, she sits back like she's in more of a passive role because she is the audience. She's still in a very strong uh, a strong position, and I love that um, Cronenberg puts his audience in a position of strength as a viewer. Um, but yeah, these two female roles were, were directed, they're male directors. You know, it wasn't that there weren't female directors around at the time. In fact, that was kind of the blossoming of the Catherine Bigelow, um, age. And that was when she was really coming about with things like Near Dark was only a couple of years after, after Aliens. Were there a lot of test screenings of The Fly? There were a few, yes. There were a few test screenings and there were things that were subsequently cut out. But talking, there's, I think that there was a general, in general, a consensus that the monkey cat scene should have been cut out. Now, the monkey cat scene was another scene in the development of the experimentation to get the telepods working in the fly. And basically it was a monkey and a cat that uh, fuse together and turn inside out and become kind of voracious and attack Seth Brundle and he has to, I think, bludgeon this creature, this poor creature to death. And the decision was made, and I think rightly so, even though some great effects were lost by cutting out this scene, the decision was made that this was, you know, to have him do this to this creature 
and then bludgeon it to death, we're going to lose we're going to lose um, sympathy with the audience with Seth, Seth Brundle. And and this is one of the big achievements of The Fly is to actually keep you on Seth, uh, Seth Brundle's side right from the start to the finish. I mean, he, turn, he literally turns into a monster and a really scary monster and there's tears at the end of The, the Fly. I don't know about you, but I still cry when I watch that film and you get to the end. Yeah, it's, re- it's a very moving moving film and by the end he's a monster and not only that he's a puppet he's not even a person anymore it's not Jeff Goldblum there but we've been taken along to this point we believe it and we're emotional and we're we're left on this emotional note without any epilogue which there was meant to be as well but I think that they chose the right point. They chose the, to not have anything after that. Let's let's leave it on a high or a low or whatever you consider that moment to be. It's a very strong moment, a very strong end. We don't need any little crawl to say what happened afterwards or whatever. Let's be careful about our character. Let's let's be careful about not making him too monstrous too early, which was what the mon- the monkey cat scene was the audiences were indicating to the test audiences that that was too much. The only person, now I say there was a consensus with this, the only person that I seem to have come across who believes that that the monkey cat scene should have been in there is Tim Lucas, who you're no doubt very familiar with Tim and his his work. He was the on-set journalist for the fly and he gave me a lot of information he was covering it at the time for american cinematographer and cinefx magazines so he got really a lot of access and he said he felt this the monkey cat scene added a whole extra dimension of um an extra level to it that was lost when it was taken out differing opinions shall we say Looking at those deleted scenes and reading the script and knowing some of the things that were supposed to be in there that maybe were shot, maybe that weren't, was there anything that you personally feel maybe should have been in the movie? What was essentially the final cut is the final cut. I think that that the, the decisions that were made were very wise decisions. Stuart Kornfeld talks about the film. He hoped that it would have looked more gothic in its look. He kind of wanted something that was maybe uh, a bit darker. But I even think in the way that Mark Irwin shot it was was wonderful. I like the way that he managed to overcome a lot of really extra, um, difficult elements like the, the darkness of the monster, the darkness, the gooiness of – Seth Brundle and light him so that we can see him. I think that you could have had him much more in the shadows. In fact, if this film was to be remade, Lordy forbid, but if it was to be remade again in this day and age um, and it was a CGI thing, you'd want it more in the shadows because CGI just wouldn't look as good that exposed. But instead he was able to bring... Uh, the definition to this amazing puppetry that Chris Wallace came up with and his crew under incredible time constraints and be able to get that definition alongside someone like Gina Davis who has very, very pale, translucent skin. So it was a far more technical 
film, even in terms of the lighting and the shooting, I think the, then it, most people um, most people think. I, I think you can see that there's a lot of work that goes into those special effects, especially the the amount of puppets that had to be created in order to create one as such, because it is a monster that mutates and changes. Uh, but yeah, just in terms of actually lighting it, and we're at a time when there was. It was just optical effects. You weren't using anything computer generated. There was a hell of a lot of work that went into this and a lot of problem solving. I spoke to uh, one of the technical um, crew, Lee Wilson, who was in charge of the computer effects. But I love that when we say computer effects in 1986, we're not talking about CGI. We're actually talking about how the computer that Seth works on how that looks on screen and the amount of work that went into creating the look of the computer and how important that computer is because the computer is what gives us the main, uh, the, the main plot points, the, the plot turning points in some, in, in some instances. The description of how they did the glowing of the telepods was remarkable as well. Yeah, that was um, Catherine Catherine Keane who did that. So she's an artist and she literally has to work on uh, or what she did work on at that time with those films technologies was to create light effects and how important that was. But even things like the, the pod, the design of the pods themselves, coming up with the look of the pods was such a, a huge deal and that's something that they couldn't lock on until really the weekend before going into shooting. And that was how Cronenberg's uh, interest in motorcycles and mechanical m- machinery, basically. He was working on his Ducati motorcycles and he saw those cylinder heads and went, hey, there's my, there's my design for my pods. <laughs> Yeah, those things are like works of art unto themselves. I mean, when I heard about the Cronenberg exhibit up in Toronto, I was like, yeah, that makes total sense. Absolutely. I love that they're still around. John Getz did tell me that his leg, where um, in the big finale of The Fly, when um, Brundlefly vomits on his leg and he has that, so he has this prosthetic leg, he actually kept that um, when he left the set and he said he used to have a lot of fun. He had it for a number of years. He's not sure where it's gone now, but he used to put it in the fridge when his kids would have their friends around. So when they opened the fridge, there'd be this fake leg in there. <laughs> he was a very lovely man to talk to, John Getz as well. And I think that we focus a lot on um, Jeff Goldblum, rightly so, because it is really a virtuoso performance for Jeff Goldblum in The Fly. But John Getz has uh, a really difficult role to play because he brings in a, a lot of um, the comedic element as well, a lot of the humour into this film. And he has to go from what is essentially a baddie to a hero. Right, yeah, and, and he plays the baddie so well in this movie. I know, he's just completely icky. <laughs> totally icky. But that was um, you know, and the, the the way that Cronenberg did sell her going back to going to him for help 
I think that was a major achievement for him because it is hard to believe that she would turn to such a character. But in our heads, when we've seen her with no one else, we've only seen Veronica isolated. It makes sense to know that she would turn to him and therefore he's given that opportunity to redeem himself and show himself as more of a, uh, you know, a fully rounded character, uh, a multi-dimensional dimensional character than one, rather than this just this sleazebag. Why do you think the fly still has this staying power? Why are we still talking about this in 2019? I think it's because it's imbued with high tide marks of classic storytelling. So it's it's not that the fly recreates uh, a new high tide mark as such, but it takes things like Frankenstein, which is, you know, we can't deny that's one of the all-time most important pieces of literature in it's not that the frankenstein story wasn't even around probably in some other form before frankenstein but it's what it's how that resonated at a certain time what it represented and therefore what has been spawned from it and then something else it's not just frankenstein though it's not the fly is not just a frankenstein story it then also has this classic love story, this, the beauty and the beast love story in there, which is another very important high tide mark in literature uh, and something that we can all therefore relate to. I mean, even people who haven't heard many, who don't read much or haven't heard many stories or haven't been to many films, they'll, they'll have these stories in there, pardon, well, pardon the analogy, but DNA, you know, when we're talking about DNA with these films, they'll have that in their DNA. They'll know Beauty and the Beast. They'll know Frankenstein just because it's everywhere. So it's the kind of story that people can come to and not really have necessarily the greatest awareness of storytelling, just be, you know, just be there for the ride and it will tap into something for them. It will tap into something that they know, a familiarity, yet it tells it in a, such a, a new, refreshing way. The other themes of The Fly, just the the interesting thing is I talked about Beauty and the Beast there and Fr- Frankenstein, but I think for Cronenberg the most important thing was uh, or the inspiration was Kafka's Metamorphosis. And he even wrote a piece in the Paris Re- Review uh, a few years ago where he actually draws on his own experience of turning 70 and likens that to Kafka's character, character in The Metamorphosis and also what he was doing with The Fly. So in terms of the 80s zeitgeist, everyone saw the fly as being part of the AIDS allegory and the AIDS commentary of what was going on at the time. And that, so that had um, a great impact, that, that deciphering of the story at that time. But in a probably more broader universal sense, and this is what Cronenberg has held on to, the fly is about mortality. And it's about us getting old and it's about us changing and aging and then ultimately dying. And that's something that everyone can understand and everyone can pick up on inherently. And it's a very, very powerful way of telling it. So what are you working on these days? 
talking about Frankenstein, a book on the Bride of Frankenstein. Oh, so nice. I'm doing another, yeah, I'm doing another um, monograph and it's for the Electric Dreamland, so the Midnight uh, Movie Monograph series. So it's not, it's a different one from Auteur uh, and Devil's Advocates. But it's a film that has always intrigued me and I feel that there's so much to talk about with it and in some ways even though it's a film that's um, high on the radar for cineasts and or you know people who just popular culture it hasn't been written about that much you know there's a lot of uh, there's lots lots of ways of infiltrating it so I'm still in the very early stages I'm trying to Try and find a way of infiltrating it, which way I'm going to, which angle I'm going to take. But I've already had um, very generous uh, uh, film correspondents around the world who've got quite excited by the thought of me writing about it, so have been handing me their research, which is great, you know. Um, I find that other film lovers slash film commentators are usually in some ways egoless and are always really happy to share and encourage um a fellow film lover to do their thing, which I just love myself. It's great. Is there a good place for people to keep up with you and your work? I've got a little, a little blog that's going that I, I really should give it a much better URL. I, I really need to, to direct um, another URL, URL to it, but it's just emmawestwood.wordpress.com at the moment. And um, uh, I, that's where I tend to, you know, put what's going on, what's happening my the events, uh, my radio work and links to my work across the web and so forth. And so that's probably the best place to, to direct them to. If you have a look on my Twitter, the link's on there anyway, so you can pick it up from there. You've got such a crazy freaking career, and I'm very curious how you got to be the producer of The Fly and then where you're at today and kind of how you got your start. If, if you don't mind me asking, like, how you, you know, the, the origin story, if you will. I was, a, I was a student at the American Film Institute. They had a, uh, a program called the Directing Workshop for Women where they allowed women who had done something in the entertainment industry an opportunity to direct like a half hour video. I started working with the women in the workshop and one of the women in the workshop was Anne Bancroft. Everybody kind of worked for free on these projects and then the women who were directing would, uh, would have a dinner for everybody to, to thank them. And at the dinner I met Mel Brooks and we, then we did another project together and Mel said, call me when you get out of, uh, out of AFI. I called him and he said, you know, all right, I've got you in mind for something. And then a couple of months later, he called me and said, uh, you know, come in. And he hired me to be his, uh, his assistant on uh, high anxiety. That's how I originally met Mel. See, I, I worked with him on, on high anxiety. And, uh, and then I produced this movie, Fatso, that Anne Bancroft was directing. Anyway, whatever. That's, that's like the, the Mel Brooks thing, which, which sort of started me on everything. And I worked, worked with him through uh, History of the World and, uh, and then split. And I ended up getting like the overall deal at 20th Century Fox. And Chuck Pogue came to me with, uh, with the idea of the fly. 
I'm shortcutting a bunch of stuff that you can ask me about later. But uh, anyway, um, yeah. Um, and so I said, well, let's screen the movie because he knew that it was a, it was a 20th Century Fox film, and I had a deal at 20th Century Fox. So we screened the film, and uh, I said, look, you know, I'm not really interested in doing a, a head transplant film, but I think it would be really interesting if it was more of a metamorphosis. Chuck liked that idea, and we set it up at Fox. Then he, he wrote a draft, which I really liked. The studio was uh, had had a change of administration, and uh, well, actually, no, they hadn't had a change. But the guy was running the studio decided that that the film would not work because he didn't believe that you could have a film where the protagonist becomes the antagonist, and they were not going to give up the rights. And I asked them if uh, if I, I if I, look if I if I raise the money. We distribute it, and they said, well, yeah, we'll do that. So at that point, I found a director, this guy, Bob Bierman, who had done this uh, this film, um, uh, Rocking Horse Winner, and then he went on to do Vampire's Kiss, uh, but that's like a couple of years after all this. And we started developing the, the film. I'd gone to Mel Brooks, who, had, you know, who, who basically said he would raise the money. I said, you know, look, I got to raise the money. Can you help me with this? He goes, yeah. He says, yeah, absolutely. He was going to raise the money, and then there was a change of administration at the studio, and they said, look, we want to make this movie. So he never had to raise the money, which was, you know, nice. And they, but they did set it up as a, as a negative pickup deal. Bob Bierman was in Los Angeles, working, uh, uh, was about to start working on a new draft of the script with, uh, with Chuck. And uh, I got a call at like four in the morning. He said, oh, look, something horrible has happened. Can you come over? He was staying at the Chateau Marmont. And I, you know, I like went over to see him. His wife and his two kids had been in South Africa on her parents' farm where, where, where she grew, grew up. And something happened. They were on a tractor and the tractor ran over and killed one of his kids. And it was horrible. And the whole thing kind of fell apart. At that point, not to bore you with <laughs> with the ins and outs, but there was a point where Mel wanted to bring on a different writer other than Chuck Pogue, and the different writer kind of fucked the whole thing up. But that was sort of the draft. That was like the, that became the official draft. I couldn't really show anybody <laughs> the draft that Chuck Pogue had done. You know, it was, and and everybody kind of thought, oh, the fly. It was, it was just a very kind of uh, cheap kind. Of, everybody thought it was like going to be a camp movie, especially given the fact that you know I'd worked with Mel and everything. There was really nobody. You know, there was no director that I could find. But Cronenberg was actually the first director I had gone to before Chuck Pogue or anybody. But he was doing Total Recall. He was on that. And I was actually uh, walking down the hall one day, and I, I saw uh, Scott Rudin, who was the at that point was an executive at Fox and was my my executive. And I said, you know, I'm fucked. You know, <laughs> you know, the only guy who's read the, the only guy who's read the uh, you know read the read the good script is uh, is Cronenberg, and he's on Total Recall. And Scott knew that Total Recall was falling apart, so I called up Cronenberg. Um, and uh, he was interested in doing it. We we did everything we could to make a to make a, a, a deal with him, because of the configuration of the of the of the deal, where and the point where I was supposed to raise the money, 
Mel Brooks was basically was going to be on the line for all the money that had been spent. We set up a negative pickup deal where the studio would pay him back when they had the film. So he was kind of in the hole on the whole thing uh, for the prep and the, and the, and the script costs. And like our one chance was to go with Cronenberg. I mean, here's like a great director who wants to do it. And the deal that his agent wanted to make and was uh, he would write and direct. And he had told me that the only way he was interested in writing was to do a page one rewrite. And, uh, you know, and I kind of developed it and, you know, I was kind of like, yeah, fine. Okay, whatever. His agent calls us and says, well, he wants to write and direct it. And he wants $750,000. Mel, who is kind of about to go <laughs> into the hole on this thing, if we can't set it up, writes a letter to Barry Diller, who was like the chairman of Fox at that point, and says, uh, look, David Cronenberg is interested in doing this. David Cronenberg is a master of horror, this and that and the other, blah, blah, blah. And we can get him right now if we move quickly for a million dollars. And Diller says, okay, fine, go ahead and do it. The following day, we're on the phone with the, with the agent, and we say, okay, we hear your, you know, we, we've thought about your offer at 750, and we want to counter with a million. And let me tell you, <laughs> everybody says things move slowly in Hollywood. Things move very quickly on that deal. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, uh, and what was great, listen, what was great was it was a, an exercise in good faith on, of Mel to me, because, uh, you know, we had done Elephant Man and everything, and um, and he had, he had never seen the David Cronenberg film. <laughs> but, but he knew he was going to, you know, there was like a, a million and a half against the movie, so that was incentive enough. So David came, David came on. My understanding with him was he could do a page one rewrite, but also I got to react to it, and if there were things that, you know, that I didn't like, we'd have to, you know, discuss them or, you know, whatever. He sent me his draft, and it was a completely different movie. The movie that Chuck had written was one where uh, it was a husband and wife trying to have a kid, more of a kind of domestic thing. You know, the pregnancy is tough. It was a little more Rosemary's Baby-ish, but with the same the same metamorphosis into you know into a into a monster. Chuck wrote essentially what we shot, what we ended up shooting, which is a completely different story. I had worked so long and so hard on getting the fucking script made, you know, you know, approved, getting the money for the movie, losing a director because of a death, finding, you know, <laughs> finding a director. And I read the script and it was so different. I was like, Jesus Christ. I don't, <laughs> I, I, he threw out everything. And I, I was, I was really, I slipped out. You know, I thought a rewrite would be change a few names and, <laughs> give the guy a different profession. You know, I, I thought it would be a, a major rewrite, but I didn't think it was going to be a completely different movie. And a friend of mine, Tim Hunter, I called him up. I said, can you read this script? Because, you know, I'm lost. And he read the script and he said, uh, this is great. Having the voice of somebody who I trusted kind of saying to me, don't let your emotional nonsense blind you to the quality of what this thing is. Allowed me to do just that. You know, I, I had some some things in the script, and we did another draft. You know, I love working with Cronenberg. I mean, Jesus Christ, he's a. I mean, 
I've I've worked with a lot of directors, and uh, he's at the at the at the tippy top with a couple of others in terms of everything, in terms of uh, technique, intellectual ability, ability to you know point of view, and and working with actors, and he never gets enough credit uh, as an actor's director. So anyway, so we had to cast the movie. The first person we went to was John Malkovich, and that didn't work out. We were kind of, we felt kind of stonewalled by his agent, by his manager, actually. You know, who was kind of like the, the fly. This guy's a class act. He's not going to do some fucking head transplant movie. You know, <laughs> like well, no, it's not that. But you know, we couldn't get a read because you know it was a, it was a low prestige film. We there are a couple of other people that we went to, and we're literally like we're like we didn't know who to who to cast. I was on the phone with uh, an agent from William Morris who was basically going through all William Morris actors who were available, and Jeff Goldblum was on that list. And Cronenberg and I both going hmm, Jeff Goldblum. Cronenberg met with uh, met with Goldblum, had a very successful meeting, and then we went in to tell Fox that we wanted Jeff. This, I think, is a, it's, it's, it's an interesting story because of how much Hollywood has changed. Larry Gordon was the head of the studio at that point, or head of production, the guy who greenlit movies. He was the one who had said, we're making the fly, you know, as soon as he came in and that kind of like got the ball rolling again. And we said, Jeff Goldblum, and he was like, ah, eh, Jeff Goldblum. And again, there was a little bit of the concern of, we don't want people to think this is a comedy. You know, and also, uh, you know, he's like, I don't know, you know, he's not exactly a leading man. He'd done the big chill, but you know, in the big chill, it's a, it's a dramatic turn, but he's also kind of the comedy relief. And you know, he'd done some other movies. And Larry Gordon said, uh, "Look, I think uh, doing the movie with Jeff Goldblum as the lead would be a horrible mistake, but it's your mistake to make. So if that's what you want to do, go ahead." How often do you hear that? Uh, I think I've heard it once. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was it. We made, went up to Canada and made the, made the movie. But you know, and Jeff actually was was involved with Gina Davis at the time. It's a good story about <laughs> how smart Cronenberg is and what an idiot I was. If, uh, we had Gina come in and read, and she was the first person who read. And Cronenberg uh, was like, "Yeah, okay, let's hire her." I'm like, "Dude." You know, and, and I was in the reading, and I said, you know, it's like, she was great. I go, yeah, but it's the script. You know, we've never heard anybody read the script before. Uh, you know, we can't do that. Based on my idiocy, there were other <laughs> other actresses that we read, and nobody ever came close. Meanwhile, we're trying to keep, you know, Gina on the hook, and she's also uh, involved with, uh, you know, with the leading man who we didn't want to alienate. Ultimately, we were like, fuck this. You know, she's the best one. Or I would, I think I was fucked. This Cronenberg <laughs> was like, I told you so. So that was it. Then we got John Getz and did the movie up in Toronto. Was there any weirdness having your two leads involved with each other? No, not uh, zero. I mean, actually, it was a, it was it, in its own way, it was a lifesaver because Jeff had hours of makeup time, and Gina would go in, would go in, in with him and like read him stories and stuff like that. When we had the first reading of the script, Jeff and Gina had kind of worked out some moments that they thought were good that weren't in the script. 
And we go through the reading and everything, and, you know, they, they were clever and everything, but, you know. And at the end of the reading, Cronenberg says, and, you know, I've never heard him raise his voice. I don't know if you've had any dealings with him or anything, but he doesn't, nothing rattles him. And he said, all right, well, we're going to take a break, and then I'd like to proceed with the people who want to do this script. And now, now I, I, I can't say anything without an edge to my voice. It was a very kind of not like fuck you or I'm pissed or anything. It's like, okay, we're going to continue with the, with the people who want to do this script. And they came back and, you know, and they're both really fucking great improvisational actors and they work on, and, and then that was it. He shoved all of his chips into the center very quietly and, and everybody, and everybody folded. But, uh, I mean, I, you know, it was, it was really, uh, we were lucky to have the people that we had. Uh, when I tell people about, about that, everybody's kind of surprised by, by Cronenberg and the ease in which he just sort of kind of straightened things out or straightened everybody out. And also that uh, there was no, nobody got passive aggressive. Nobody was trying to, it was like, okay, we're making this movie. Let's, let's, uh, let it, under the, under the direction of a guy that we trust who knows what he's doing. So rare to find that especially rare to find it, I would think, in, in a couple who certainly could have just gone home that night and went, <laughs> you know, Jesus, what's with him? He didn't like our ideas. No. Very calmly done and uh, a point made that was made very clearly and in a, in a, in a non-aggressive, non-antagonistic way. Cronenberg is, uh, he should just get that... Uh, you know, I'll say another interesting thing about him. Have you seen Crash? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I love that movie. Okay. I would say that and Requiem for a Dream are the two, are the two best movies that, that deal with addiction. But here's the thing about Crash and how Cronenberg is just on another level. It's a whole, a whole movie about car crashes. And there's not one slow motion shot in the entire thing. <laughs> so I did not notice that myself. Somebody pointed that out to me and I was like, fuck, that, that is a brave thing to do. I mean, that is just a full on balls thing to do because it really is about the people, you know, and if you, if you just look at it as uh, you know, like, like alcohol or drugs, it's spectacular. I'm going to backtrack just a little bit. As far as Charles Pope coming to you with this script, I mean, was he commissioned to do that or how was he, how did he come up with the idea of, yeah, I want to revisit the fly. Kip Oman was his manager. And I think that the two of them, he had the idea and Kip really liked the, you know, like the idea and encouraged him to go out with it or, or they came up with it together, but Chuck came in and then I, you know, I made my modification which was what? What did you add to the script? Originally, he really wanted to be, do, I'm sure you've seen the original fly, where it's kind of, you know, a guy pops out of a machine with a, with a fly's head, and I, I thought that it would be more of a nightmare if it was a guy who was subtly changing and he didn't know what he was changing into. That was kind of what, what they pitched, and I said, well, I, you know, if he's gradually turning into to the, to this monster, I, I'd be interested in doing that. So there was never a draft, but, you know, but, but that was sort of the, uh, the, the idea that came to me 
was, you know, much more loyal to the first movie. When it comes to, I feel terrible, I can't remember the gentleman's name, the uh, original guy who was attached to direct it. I'm curious how he came to the project. What was it about his work where he said, oh, yeah, this is the guy? I, I really liked this short film that he had done. And, and I went to England and I met with him. And, uh, you know, he had a very, uh, a very good sense of sort of creepy suspense. And, uh, and I thought he'd, he'd be good. And, you know, I'd have had luck before with, uh, well, I don't know if it's luck, but, uh, you know, bringing David Lynch into Eraser and, and into, uh, into Elephant Man after he'd done Eraserhead was, was also my, you know, my idea. So I was like, it's better to bring people from the fringe into the center than <laughs> try to get people already in the center to do something new. That was, that was it. I mean, and it was a film that was going to be done for a budget. And I, and I really, you know, and also, like I said, I'd gone after Cronenberg first, but, you know, there aren't many people who do that kind of tone. And also Cronenberg's films always had kind of a documentary feel, which, which I think for telling the fly serviced it because, you know, the style is sort of like it's taking place in a mundane world. That grounds it more. And I thought that the more it could be grounded, the better, because what was going on on screen was, was, was really strange. And if, it, if people stopped believing it, the whole movie was going to fall apart. You know, and then, then you know, it's, it's uh, obviously once I, once I started working with him, I went, oh, well, this guy is the right guy. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he had done Videodrome, and I thought that the first two acts of Videodrome were, like, amazing. And and the same kind of thing. I mean, I mean, definitely the same kind of thing. I mean, horribly weird stuff is happening, but it's 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 shot and delivered in a way that that uh, I mean, it it it's not it's not a documentary style. He's not you know it's not a you know a, a faux documentary or anything. But he just plays things very realistic, and that was really especially given the fact that, uh, you know, people thought it was going to be a camp, you know, non-prestige movie. I was very cognizant of that and wanted somebody who was going to ground it. Same thing with, uh, with Bob Bierman uh, and, and the short that he had done. You know, very, uh, it was a little more lyrical, but um, very, uh, you believe the stuff that was going on. Did... Goldblum have any hesitation about playing so much of his role under the makeup or is he looking at the guy who produced uh, the elephant man and said a performance can come through under all that makeup? David was the first one to, uh, to meet with, with, with Jeff, uh, you know, the meetings with actors and directors, I find since that's such a crucial relationship, that's to be absent. And, <laughs> you know, it's not a, it's not a, you know, you know, uh, three really is a crowd. And, and I think that, that when David explained to him the movie that he wanted to do, I'm sure Jeff was, uh, you know, was into it. I, I mean, I never had a conversation with him about that. And also I never, uh, I, he never complained ever. He was, he was, he was, he was fantastic. You know, plus, you know, plus, plus, plus it was, you know, it was a big jump for him. I mean, he wasn't, he hadn't been like, you know, he was, he was the lead, you know, and he was carrying the movie. So I think that, you know, that, that, that challenge he was up for. 
I think it was so smart to keep the full transformation, the non-Goldblum part of it, so little at the end and keep him in there as long as possible. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. Well, listen, I mean, the more you see, the faker it looks. I mean, <laughs> for effect. I mean, this is before CG, you know, so you really want to kind of pick your shots. So, you know, keep him in shadows, you know, make him look different every time. I will say that at the first preview, you know, there's the scene where uh, where he's going through the whole his whole Brundlefly thing. The his ear falls off, and then she she okay, and she's still kind of with him. That gets the biggest screen in the entire movie. And Cronenberg didn't, and I didn't even know that was there. <laughs> I mean, we're sitting there, and like it's, the, the audience fucking goes, you know, like crazy, and we look at each other like, whoa! <laughs> I didn't know that was buried in there. I didn't know an ear falling off was going was gonna to be the big scream. When Jeff went into that mode of, you know, the fact that he was playing a, a guy who was turning into a mutant and doing it with self-awareness and a sense of humor, you know, it's a, you know, comedy always grounds things. He was the right guy. He was absolutely the right guy. I know, of course, there were a lot of makeup effects on The Elephant Man, but I don't imagine that you worked on anything so special effects heavy to that point. I hadn't, but the other thing is, Elephant Man was done in black and white, and the demands of black and white are not as great as the demands of color. That no, I hadn't. I hadn't. Uh, I'd never done like a, a monster movie, you know. And, and Chris Wallace was great. I mean, it was he was great in terms of, you know, we had to design each each incarnation, you know, or each evolution. You know, that was a challenge. He was up to it, and um, and Jeff was up to it, and glad it worked. <laughs> it worked well enough to make it believable, so that was the challenge. What order was it shot in? Did you do the effect stuff up front, or do you save that to the end, or how does that go? One of the blessings of doing a movie that essentially takes place in an apartment uh, or a loft is that... And, and with a, a small cast, is that you can do it. You know, you can shoot in continuity. You know, why wouldn't you? And also, you know, then you get to see stuff, and then it means, you know, things that you come up with in one scene, you can, you know, you can refer to or reference in, you know, in, in another scene. So, uh, yeah, for the most part, that's 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 what we did. I don't I don't remember. Uh, Let's see him crashing through the window. I don't know if we did that kind of during the middle. We shot a bunch of exteriors. We we shut down for a little bit and uh, and waited for the snow to come, and then we shot all all of our exteriors. So there was that, but there aren't really that many exteriors. Yeah, I think it's, again, very smart to keep so much of it in the loft, so much of it with just a few characters. It plays out so well that way. Oh, it's, I'm telling you, it's a, it, it, it's a blessing. I mean, when, when, uh, you know, when we did, uh, you know, when we did Tropic Thunder, it was kind of the same, the same thing. Okay. We're in the jungle. We're in the, we're in the same jungle. We can afford, we can afford to, uh, to, to shoot in, in continuity as much as possible. Cause mostly, mostly continuity is, is the issues with actors availability and, uh, and locations. You know, that's, those are the only things that dictate it. 
if you're in the same location, you've got the same actors, you have a tremendous, tremendous advantage. The Fly was a huge success. Was it pretty much a given that there would be a sequel to it? Uh, yeah, you know, yeah, at a point. At a point. And, and that was something... <laughs> That was something. It was like it was like. Well, should we kill him at the end? Or what about a sequel? And I, and and I, uh, my attitude was always. And I'm sure this is. You know, I'm sure it was probably Cronenberg's attitude as well. But let's make this movie as good as we can possibly make it. And if when somebody wants to make a sequel, there's always a way to do it. So no, I mean, once it started making money and making money foreign, yeah, they said they wanted to do a sequel. But it wasn't until it came out, yeah. And I know you were executive producer on that. Were you a little more hands-off on that one, on the sequel? Yeah, I left it. I mean, I, I mean, on, on the fly, I was there every day. I, I really, I was never... <laughs> I, I, yeah, no, I mean, I was hyper-present. There were, there were some issues. There was yet another change of administration at the studio. And Len Goldberg was the studio head and... We had a, a we Nick Garris was writing, and we had an approach, and that approach wasn't working, and we um, and we went, you know, maybe we should do it this other way, and the other way was much more interesting, and we went in and we talked to our executive, and he agreed, so we're writing this other script, and then the executive says, oh, I need an outline, and I'm like, you know, dude, we're two weeks away from finishing the script. Like, <laughs> why don't you wait two weeks and read the whole thing? No, I really need an outline. I really need an outline, blah, blah, blah. And uh, Lynn Goldberg read the outline, and he also had an outline for the first approach and called us into the, into the office and said, uh, you're doing the first one. And he also said, and it, you know, he, he said to me, uh, look, I don't know, you know, it's kind of like, I don't know who you think you are, that you can just, you know, just change the movie that's being made. But I'm telling you, this is the one that was approved, and uh, and that's the that's the one that we're making, and it, it just it just wasn't as good, and I left. It was it was uh, it was disgusting. Yeah, I bailed <laughs> during my during my period of bailing on movies. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, there was no point. Well, you were involved in another one that seems to have a, a, a not stellar reputation, which is Mimic. How much involvement did you have with that one? I left it. <laughs> okay, there you go. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. um, I was I, I was working with Guillermo. It was originally part of a trilogy. I was the producer of the Collective Three. Guillermo had actually brought me into the project because we had tried to set up this movie Spanky. When the other two collapsed, they decided they wanted to do Mimic as a feature. As a full feature, Guillermo wrote a script. It was a good script. And Bob Weinstein, uh, who was running Dimension, it was the first movie he'd taken like a producing credit. So he was like really in there producing away. And he said, I don't, I don't remember what the numbers were, but it was like, you know, do this for 50, you got to do it for $15 million. I said, it can't be done. You know, it can't be done. Um, just tell, or tell me what scenes you don't want to be shooting. And he said, well, do a, do a, do a budget for $15 million. I go, well, you know. Why? It's just, it's just, you know, it's just going to be a lie, and then we'll get caught up in that lie, and then we'll start going over budget and over schedule, and you know, I just said no. So they brought, they brought another producer on, and sort of marginalized me, 
the one thing I was able to do was set Guillermo up with Cronenberg's crew in Toronto with Carol Spear and, uh, you know, people that I had worked with and who were great. But no, I, I, I left. I, I thought this is, this is, this, is, and Bob was a super control freak. You know, I said, look, just, you know, convert me to a, to an executive producer and I'll cut my fee in half and that'll be it. I was upset, but I mean, it was, they were, they, they were putting Guillermo through, you know, they jumped through all sorts of hoops and it was, it was disgusting. It was really disgusting. There was nothing I could do. I had no credibility with the studio. There was nobody I could, you know, state my case to because I was already sort of marginalized. I was out of, you know, out of the loop in terms of information. You know, it's like I didn't need to be like a, an intern on a movie watching to see, see how one was made. So I left. And then, <laughs> uh, then they just wouldn't pay me my money. And, I mean, they wouldn't pay me my money that they owed me. And they're kind of like, yeah, you know, you can sue us. Do it. You know, it's like, you know, and, you know, not, not taking my phone call, saying, oh, it's this guy, it's that guy, it's the guy in New York, and all this stuff. And it was, just, you know, it was humiliating and disgusting. And, and then at a certain point, the, Michael Phillips, the guy who had brought them the, the idea of the trilogy originally, was also an executive producer. He wanted to be the sole executive producer. So they called me up and said, would you mind being a co-executive producer? I said, number one, I don't care what my credit is on this. Number two, if you want me to change it, it's going to cost you the money you owe me and another $50,000. <laughs> I go, that, you know, that's it. And, you know, and like I said, you know, I don't care. So they, then they come back and they go, well, we can get you the money and, you know, you know, we can get the money you owe, we owe you and, you know, we're throwing an extra 10000 10, I'm like, I'm like, I, I, I couldn't have been clearer. I, it's, it's, it's $50,000. That's it. You know, and if you do it, great. And if you don't do it, you know, whatever, you know, then I'm, I'm, I'm executive producer. And like I said, I really don't care. And they're like, Oh, this is going to cost you your, <laughs> your relationship with the Weinstein brothers. And I'm like, why? Yeah, I'd love that to be part of the deal too. You know, <laughs> you know, and ultimately they paid me, uh, they paid me the money they owed me and another $50,000. And, and the thing that was really weird about it was, you know, I ran into, you know, different times Harvey and Bob. And, and Bob. And it was really weird the first time it happened because I was like, oh, they're going to think I'm an asshole. It did not matter to them one bit. Wanted to make movies with me. If anything, they were a little more respectful. <laughs> it was a learning experience. But, yeah, it was what they did with what they did to Guillermo was disgusting. There was a meeting where we were going over storyboards, and there's like a storyboard of like, you know, Jeremy Northam's character, you know, is in his office. There's like a little picture frame there, and Bob is like, what's in the picture frame? You know, and it's like, I don't, you know, whatever. <laughs> you know, you know, it's a diploma, and it's like, oh, what's in it? You know, like this constant battering and bringing in Ole Bornadal to uh, sort of, you know, monitor everything that was going on to the guy who had done night watch. It's like I said, <laughs> it's during my, uh, I don't like it. So I'm leaving phase, <laughs> which is not a good, which is not a good phase to, to go through. It's a bad reputation to have. 
And and it's a and it's a weird one because it's like you're leaving you know I'm leaving movies that, that have been set up, you know. <laughs> so it's not like I was uh, <laughs> like I, I had I had done what what could be looked at as the hard part of the job. But anyway, yeah, it's um, it's too disgusting, too disgusting. And Guillermo, you know, as he has proven, <laughs> well, you know, yeah, yeah, or you know, it's like well, I don't know. Where's Guillermo and where are the Weinsteins? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, no, it was uh, it was tragic. You've got a weird credit that I've wanted to ask you about. You get special thanks on Blade Trinity. Why is that? Uh, Goyer's a good friend of mine. Goyer's a very good friend of mine. And uh, actually, was my next-door neighbor. He was a good friend of mine, and then he became my next-door neighbor. And, uh, and actually, I officiated his, his, uh, at his wedding. And uh, I remember he came over, and he came, he came over and said, and said, "Well, I want you to, I want you to marry us." And my wife said, uh, "All I can tell you is he married me, and I've been miserable ever since." <laughs> Good line, and I mean, like, threw it out right in the moment. Anyway, so I think I, I think it's that I used to, you know, read, uh, you know, read first drafts of his and and and, and stuff. And um, I, but I, I, you know, it's just David Goyer being a being a cool, nice guy. That's really what it comes down to. How did you and Ben Stiller start working together? I used to work out at the Y, the Hollywood Y, and so did Jerry Stahl, and we kind of became friends, you know, gym buddies. And he had co-written with Ben what makes Sammy run. And he gave it to me to read, and you know, I told him my thoughts, and he told Ben, and Ben wanted to sit down and kind of hear him, and you know, asked me to kind of write them up, and they went went off to do a rewrite and implemented some of my ideas, whatever, whatever. They went off to do a, a rewrite, and um, and then he and I just started hanging out together. And oh, and then at a certain point, I was sort of brought on to be the uh, the producer of What Makes Sammy Run. And then at a certain point, Ben already had Red Hour, and was unhappy with the guy who was. Uh, who was running it and asked me if I wanted to come in and run the company. So it was really through, 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 through Jerry Stahl. I have read a rumor that Les Grossman was based on, no, you. Is that true? <laughs> no. I didn't think no, so. No, Cause you haven't no, screamed like, at me once. Oh no, no, no. You know, I got to tell you, it's like the great, it's the greatest. <laughs> it, 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 it's, 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 it's the greatest, uh, Compliment, or not? Not the greatest compliment. I think it's it's the, it's, the, it's one of the greater events <laughs> in my life because, like, like, like there was a, uh, I, w- I was, uh, I was flying to New York, and the guy was driving me to the airport. You know, I was like, uh, wait a second, didn't you drive me before? And he goes, oh yeah, yeah. And he says, you know, I was really surprised. I go, what? He says, well, before I pick people up, I like to like, you know, look them up. And it said that you were like, uh, you know, that Les Grossman was 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 based on you. <laughs> And I was, and I thought, you know, oh my God, this guy's going to like tear me a new asshole and this and that and the other. And I hope I don't fuck up. <laughs> he says, you're, you're like a really nice guy. So, um, you know, so <laughs> it's, it's like, it's like, oh yeah, you know, having that, <laughs> I wish that was my reputation. You know, it's like, I think, uh, I think Guillermo told me about uh, Jim Cameron giving him the phrase, uh, you always get a little more respect if you hang a corpse outside your door. 
Um, anyway, so that was uh, that was it. It was just uh, you know lucky to be uh, you know a round little bald guy with a beard and uh, and hairy, hairy arms. Uh, no, that 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 was. Uh, I will I will tell you an interesting story about that though. Uh, we originally want, uh, went after Tom Cruise to play the part that Ben was going to play, that, that, that Ben ended up playing. And Tom's criticism of the script was there's really no bad guy because the, the only bad guy we had was the 12-year-old uh, you know, head of the drug cartel. We didn't have Les Grossman. And he was the one who suggested a, you know, he's like a studio head, you know, something like that. And we did a draft with that. So he was really responsible for creating the character. Uh, I mean, it blew me. It blew, and while he was being, you know, while we were trying to get him to do this other character. But, uh, no, Tom Cruise, uh, guys, I don't think you can find a person who has worked with him who doesn't think he's just the greatest. That's what I always Absolutely. Hear. Oh, God. Oh, abs- absolutely. That question. I always hear weird stories like he knows the names of everybody on set and can say their names back to them and like, hey, you know, Jerry, how's your kids and all this kind of stuff. It sounds crazy. Well, I, I wouldn't know that because I don't I don't know people's names. But uh, <laughs> but we were shooting. Uh, oh, we were shooting. We were shooting Tropic Thunder uh, in Hawaii. And I get a call uh, first day of, of the shoot. And. Uh, like, hello, you know, hi, Stuart, it's Tom Cruise. <laughs> so I start laughing, you know, so it's, what, what's so funny? I go, dude, you know what's so funny. I mean, you know, I, I wanted to be in show business, and this is like one of the few moments where I feel like I am, <laughs> you know. But, but he said, you know, I think uh, I'd like to do something for, uh, I'd like to do something for, like, the crew, like send them, like, a gift or something from, from Les Grossman like something really mean or something, something like that. And we decided against it just because we were really keeping it on the, you know, on the down low or, you know, it's, uh, you know, uh, in, in, in terms of uh, his, his participation in the, in the, in the movie. The other thing was when we did, when we did, when we were doing his makeup test, he said, you know what, maybe I should dance in this movie. I haven't danced in the movie for a long time. And, and we're all like, Oh yeah, there was that one iconic <laughs> dance number <laughs> that you did, and, and uh, you know I think this is a testament to Ben. Most most directors, when presented with Tom Cruise saying, "I like dance in this movie," yeah, there's some backstory. The secretary says. Uh, Mr. Grossman, you know, you're late for your dance lessons for your daughter's bat mitzvah. You know, there's a setup. The fact that, that, that Ben was like, yeah, great. He dances. He dances when he's happy. That's it. Don't let, let, let him put it together. <laughs> you know, and that's why I was blown away with that, by that. It's like, yeah, that's a good idea. And audiences are smart. So we're just going to do it. So... So it's fun. So that, and that was another thing that, that uh, you know, the Tom was responsible for. <sighs> He's the greatest. Listen. Do you hear it? It's getting closer. Much closer. Don't be afraid. Be very, very afraid. 
You could finish your father's work. You're as brilliant as he was. Something odd is happening to me, and I don't know what it is. All right, we're back and we're talking about The Fly. So yesterday was my first time watching The Fly 2. I had put it off for 30 years and finally sat down and watched it. Uh, Yesterday was also my first time watching The Fly 2, which I didn't find out had even existed until more recently and was frankly terrified to watch it. I didn't hate it. I kind of liked it. Which I can't even believe that's coming out of my mouth. Right? Yeah. It's, I am not an Eric Stoltz guy. And so to put Eric Stoltz and a sequel to one of my favorite films together, I think that's what kept me away. Um, but yeah, I, I actually was okay with a lot of it, surprisingly enough. I mean, I love Daphne Zuniga or however you pronounce her last name. Zuniga? Seeing her was fantastic. I don't think I'd seen it until maybe a month ago. You know, I, I hadn't seen it before we started recording uh, or pre- preparing for this conversation. So, yeah, I, I was pleasantly surprised by it also. I mean, I, I definitely have some uh, issues with it. I think I was, you know, kind of uh, poking fun at the uh, the way the romance is established. But I, I do like it if I don't um, if I don't try to measure it up against the Cronenberg film. I like it as a standalone film quite a lot. I was able to think of it as not being connected to Cronenberg or his film in any way. And I tend to be a little insane and territorial about things. I like films. I love being remade or being given a sequel by a different director. If the first movie is some sort of like major figure, but with this, it just, it almost felt like, Somebody said, okay, The Fly did well, we want a sequel. And whoever developed it said, well, instead, why don't we do a remake of Return of the Fly? Because that's sort of what it felt like, like more than a direct sequel to Cronenberg's movie. Like, do you kind of know what I mean? Yeah. I, I, I thought of the return of the fly. I thought of son of Frankenstein a little bit. Definitely. And I thought about, I thought about even just the, uh, the Charles Pogue draft where the villain is, you know, kind of the man behind, you know, the financing of the, of the research. Like I, I thought of a lot of things other than Cronenberg. The thing that reminded me of Cronenberg was actually the look of it. Um, the fact that it felt like, even though I checked and none of the key crew personnel that are part of the Cronenberg package, because I mean, he always uses the same production designer and editor and the DP and the score. Like he has, like when you talk about the Cronenberg aesthetic, like part of it is because he's always using the same people. So, so many other elements besides him as a writer director are part of the films. Um, and none of those people that worked on the fly too, but it does feel like, you know, in much the way that like, um, like twin peaks has directors that are trying to approximate David Lynch, but they aren't quite David Lynch. The fly too does feel like a film that's trying to feel, uh, stylistically visually cohesive with Cronenberg. And it's weird to see someone other than Cronenberg do something that feels like that, even if it doesn't quite achieve the same degree of like, uh, pathos or, or depth, but it, the, just, just it, on a surface level does feel like 
I, I've never seen the sequels to Scanner, so I don't know if they try to do the similar thing. But this was the first time I've ever seen someone that really felt like they were doing Cronenberg you know, stylistically. Wait a minute. There's a sequel to Scanners? Oh, there's, there's two. many sequels. <laughs> Plus, there's like a, a like an unofficial branching off of Scanners into this Scanner other Cop? thing. Scanner Cop, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've watched Scanner all of those. Cop? Yeah, I watch all of those for Josh Hadley's podcast. It was either Radio Drum or uh, What the Fuck, and it was just like it, I was in hell watching those. Uh, see, this is what I'm talking about, though. Normally, it's terrible, which it's just I can't believe that The Fly 2, like, I think if The Fly 2 had a different name, it would have the same kind of reputation that those sort of cheesy 80s monster movies with good gore effects have. Like, it would be a movie that more people liked and knew about. I thought it was interesting, because it's a 20th Century Fox film, you know, yeah, and you talk about, like, those 80s cult movies. Maybe if it was, like, an underdog rather than, like, a you know, an Eric Stoltz sequel to a Cronenberg <laughs> film, like maybe that would make a difference, you know, just in how it's perceived. Cause the yeah, same way, like the fly sequels, um, you know, from the fifties, you know, seem like, uh, weirdly neglected. And those have a lot of, uh, things to recommend them. If you like the original film, I, I thought that this really didn't deserve the reputation that it's had. And I, I was trying to figure out like if it was just, you know, the casting or just the notion of even sequelizing a Cronenberg film at all, like, you know, offended the kind of people that would be writing about the fly too at the time. But, um, yeah, no, I, I think it's a very, uh, entertaining, uh, story. I'm sensing an undercurrent of Eric Stoltz hatred in this conversation. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I like him in some films and I thought, I thought of mask when watching this because that's another film where he's having to carry like big chunks of dramatic, uh, scenes under a lot of makeup, which I know that that was part of the reason that Goldblum wound up in the original film was because uh, some of the actors that Cronenberg originally approached, they felt like not having access to uh, their facial features was going to be too much of a handicap. And they didn't really, uh, or at least that's what Cronenberg says. I don't know. Maybe they just wanted more money, but like, you know, that, that, that was a, uh, a drawback for some actors. And I, I think that Soltz actually feels more confident when he's under the makeup. On some level, I think he's a little bit more awkward when he's playing a five-year-old. That was what sort of drew me into the Fly sequel is I really liked the kid in the beginning and liked that premise a lot and kind of was willing to see where it was going to go. Which is kind of a nod to Curse of the Fly, if memory serves. The whole idea of the rapid aging, I thought was kind of a nice nod there. Yeah, there were definitely... At least I think so. Some intentional nods to the original Fly sequels, which I found to be just really nice. Like instead of trying to, trying to reinvent the wheel, they were willing to sort of acknowledge like, okay, we're doing a remake or we're doing a sequel to a remake that already has all these sequels. And so why not include some of those like classic horror elements? And I, I still I like I can't believe I'm saying this but I, it's pretty, it's so so well done like the way they incorporate those genre elements. It's funny because it has like what like four different screenwriters and it's like people like Mick Garris and Frank Darabont and the brothers that did the silent scream like it's got like a lot of people that might be bigger genre movie fans than David Cronenberg because David Cronenberg seems like somebody that wouldn't 
if, if, if he does watch low budget genre films, he keeps it a secret because he's more likely to mention how a shot was inspired by Hour of the Wolf or something or something right. that he's read. Like he's not somebody that would consciously make nods to the earlier fly films. Or if he did, he would keep it a secret or acknowledge it as being from another source because he just, he seems a little bit uh, sensitive about being identified as a genre filmmaker, I think, on some level, or, or, or like he, a little bit distance from like something like The Fly too. Like he's, I, I don't know. I mean, this one feels like like the, was someone reading The Shape of Rage or like some book on Cronenberg at one point? Yeah. There's lots of yeah. there's like the, lots of like, little jokes and things like that. Yeah, yeah. Like this, this is fun and self aware about being The Fly too. Whereas the the Cronenberg film is deadly serious. This is something that normally would annoy me in a director, but doesn't in his case where I feel like he takes genre elements and he says, okay, here's this sort of beloved theme or this sort of recurring trope. And here's how I can do something much more interesting with it. In a way, he kind of gives off this vibe that he thinks he's better than straight genre films. And like I said, normally that's something I would hate, but like for the most part, he is better than straight genre films, so it works. But fortunately, they didn't have that attitude in The Fly too, because <laughs> it is it is not better than a straight genre film. No, well, it's funny because I know that you hate that uh, that remake of Suspiria, and I was thinking of that, like just like how like it is that same kind of thing. Like I'm taking a beloved horror film from the past, but I'm, I'm making it more serious and more sophisticated and more culturally interesting. Like it has that same kind of attitude, but because it, because it's not obnoxious about it, it you, you can forgive it, but it does have that same attitude that a lot of the, you know, whatever terminology you want to call post horror, like d- d- directors that feel like they're above the genre. I think Cronenberg, I mean, I don't think it's an accident that as soon as he could get out of making straight horror films, you know, with Dead Ringers, he 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 evolved into something different, which, you know, The Fly 2 comes right after Dead Ringers. And it's such a stark contrast between where Cronenberg was at that point, you know, and where, you know, films like The Fly 2 had to go. I I was thinking of actually even Dead Ringers a little bit when they're doing the slow dance of the country ballad, like that montage. Like, I wondered if that was, you know, it reminded me a little bit of when they're uh, dancing to... uh in the still of the night in dead ringers, but yes, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. I, and I do think you sort of hit the nail on the head. There is I mostly am bothered by remakes because they seem to go into directors and producers and sort of the people who create them go into it with this idea that we can somehow improve on the original or we can make a version with a younger, more attractive cast or, we can take this foreign film and make it in English for morons who don't want to read subtitles. And underlying that is this idea that there's something wrong with this original and we need to do a better version. Whereas I don't get that feeling with the fly at all. Like it seems like he saw the core of a really interesting story and wanted to make his own version and not, necessarily say well this is dumbs and we're going to do a better one i know exactly what you mean this, this comes like at the heyday maybe like the tail end of like a heyday of like 
you know, like genre filmmakers of the seventies and eighties remaking, uh, you know, films that have nostalgic value for oh, totally. that monster kid generation. I mean, you have like, you know, the Paul Schrader cat people or Carpenter's the thing. And, you know, um, this, this kind of comes at the tail end of maybe a mini cycle of those, but it's like, yeah, in a lot of cases, there are many people that prefer those films to the originals. Not, I don't in every case, but I mean, you know, they're always like when I, when I think about people getting offended by the notion of remakes, I always think of like that cycle. Films like, well, let's wait and see. Maybe, maybe something interesting would come out of it. Something interesting won't come out of it. But the reason why a lot of those are so beloved is because they're not trying to make the same story. They're trying to take an interesting idea and make something new. And that is why so many more recent remakes annoy me because it's so close to the original film. If if you know what I mean. Yeah, there's no there's no point in doing a Xerox with just cl- clearer cinematography. There are things I don't necessarily like about The Fly, too. I think some of the pacing, there's an issue to that as far as the transformation. I talked about the subtle transformation of Brundle into Brundle Fly and those sores and things like that. And I had to rewind the movie when I was watching it yesterday and, and say, wait, Eric Stoltz's face is all fucked up. When did that happen? And I was like, I guess after the guard punched him when he was leaving because his face looked pretty normal there and then in the next scene it started to look fucked up and then it was more and more and more very very fast and within 15 minutes he's in a cocoon and he's about to bust out as the new fly so things like that or like Stathis Bourne's fake beard I was just like okay (laughs) but really there was very little for me to complain about I, I did enjoy the way that it ended and that it called back to the dog part of it and the dog part called back to the earlier film. I liked the inclusion of some of the deleted scenes from the first fly movie being integrated into this or taking other parts of the first fly and integrating it into this with the the second videotape that he watches. So I thought there were some clever nods to it. I, I, I didn't hate it and I might actually go through and, you know, I've got that eight, DVD set or whatever. I think, Bill, that you've got the same thing. I, I think yeah, I'm going to yeah. go through and watch some of the extras off of this and see some of the other shots that they maybe didn't use in this. I thought of the sounds of the lambs at one point, just because, you know, the notion of dungeons in this very clinical environment, like, why would you have, why would you have the, the poor dog in like a, like a, like a, the dungeon of an old castle? Like, for- <laughs> <laughs> that's just even got like an iron grate to it. <laughs> <laughs> I also thought of Gremlins when he hatches, and I don't know if that was a deliberate nod or not. Well, I think Chris Wallace, the director of this, was supposed, who did the original effects from the first movie, I think he was given the choice of either doing The Fly 2 or Gremlins 2, and then he chose to do The Fly 2, because he wouldn't have been directing Gremlins 2, he would have been doing the effects for it. That's right, he did work on Gremlins. Okay, so that's probably, that's probably why I thought of yeah. it. Yeah. I wonder if he regrets that, because... Gremlins 2 has some great effect. It does, and I know, you know, it wasn't necessarily that lauded when it came out, but watching it now, it's like, wow. It's so good. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It is fantastic. I mean, a lot of- though there is, I'm sure you've seen the Key and Peel sketch. Yes. yes. <laughs> which is one of the funniest <laughs> things I've ever seen, and does kind of nail how over the top it is. What about a bat gremlin? You mean a gremlin with leathery wings just flying around, flip-flopping, bust through a wall, make a perfect bat symbol in the wall, get outside, get in some wet concrete, jump up on a building and just dry in place like a gargoyle gremlin? We are cooking with gas now. I love it. It's in the movie, Nick. Going back to your point earlier about how they're 
are obviously so many more genre fans on the sort of screenwriting staff. And you kind of have to wonder if it was a similar situation where they just sort of wrote out a list of things they wanted to visually reference. Because I feel like, like we were talking about earlier, it's very self-conscious of the fact that it's a horror sequel, but not in a negative way. Yeah, had this movie been made a few years later, they would have had Mark Burchard be somebody or Kevin Smith be somebody else. It feels, I'm surprised there wasn't more stunt casting as far as like having other directors in there or naming characters after directors. It feels along those lines of like almost like Night of the Creeps in the way that we're going to name characters after horror directors. So, Bill, did you ever track down Tim Lucas's flies? Because I know Emma Westwood talks a lot about that in her um, book no. about the fly. No, I never. I, you know, he and I talked about Cronenberg when I interviewed him because he had written. I might be misremembering. I don't have a recording of it because it was after we did the interview. I want to say he did a treatment for Naked Lunch as well. He has a lot to say about Cronenberg that I don't think he'll ever go on the record with. But Cronenberg, like, I just, I think because they had something like a friendship and then a falling out. And I don't, I'm not exactly clear. I think it might just be Cronenberg's sensitivity about being criticized. And I think Tim Lucas might have felt like, Cronenberg was such an interesting original writer that when he started going into adapting other people's work more and more, that that was less interesting than for him to kind of keep pursuing his own ideas as a, as an original writer director. I, I could be wrong that I, I did, I did think about that when I thought about how Mark Irwin had to leave the fly because what, like he had like a death in the family or something and put the uh, production potentially in trouble. I think Emma Westwood's book talks about that, like how that and then he had to take another project and it's like, he's just out. Peter Struzetsky is new, is the new Mark Irwin. Like it just like, like he keeps the same people, but once, once they, uh, step out of line, it's like you're, you're, you're out and the new person's in. It almost reminds me of, <laughs> of Brundle's suit collection. It's like everything is the same until somebody has to buy you a new jacket on occasion. Yeah, that's actually something I wanted to like. I, I I'm not prepared to talk about it today, but just like what the Mark Irwin visual language means versus the Peter Shuzitsky language, as far as like the look of it. I mean, I, I associate the Shuzitsky films from Dead Ringers on as having a slightly glossier sheen than the films that Mark Irwin shot, which feel a little earthier. But I, I don't know if I can articulate exactly, just on a technical level, what he's doing differently. But the, there is a slightly different quality from Dead Ringers on that's coming from the fact that he's using the same cameraman on everything up to maps of the stars. They look different and almost like more clinical or like colder or something. Yeah. Not in a, not in a negative way, but just different. But Shuzetsky also shot like people, people like Ken Russell. He shot Empire Strikes Back and Rocky Horror Picture Show. Like he shot a lot of stuff that doesn't have that quality. So I wonder how much of that is Cronenberg informing that and having a little bit more money because the fly was a hit. Like how much of that is driven by Cronenberg or how much of that is Shuzetsky's interpretation of what Cronenberg's projects are? I, I don't know, but I mean, that's something I, I definitely want to think more about. My assumption is that it's mostly Cronenberg who is just working with somebody who is very attuned to director's styles and has a great technical skill. Yeah, well, I, Mark Irwin, I mean, came to Cronenberg as a fan of the films and as someone that, like, I think taught films. So he came 
with already having an idea of what Cronenberg wanted, having seen Shivers and Rabbit. I actually like the way Cronenberg's self-shot films look, like uh, Stereo and Crimes of the Future. Like that guy could probably be his own DP if you know in certain circumstances, and it and it looked great. Like he has that eye himself, but. I don't know. I mean, I, I think about like the whole notion of the Cronenberg as auteur, and so much of that is is determined by like him working with a, a certain team. Like that, it's that gives it part of like a like a, a stylistic consistency. They have a similar look, regardless, and maybe it is because part of what makes him him is putting the right team in place. I guess. So I didn't have a chance to watch the opera. Did you guys watch the Fly Opera? Only a little bit of it. I did, and you know it's funny because the um, the version that's intact online is not directed by David Cronenberg. It's like a German production. I did look at footage from the Cronenberg directed one. It's 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 different enough that I, I was a little bit frustrated because I didn't. I don't think I realized that the German production was um, not directed by him. I didn't do my research prior to watching it, and um, so it's interesting. I mean it. Uh, that you know the Cronenberg version has like production design by um the guy that did the production design on Salo I think the Pasolini um guy and you know also like a regular um uh Scorsese collaborator now so it has an interesting like design to the look of it and the the German production production um you know I mean it's it's awkward I think to my ears to hear opera sung in English I'm, I I I'm not like a big opera buff so just the whole notion of people singing the dialogue, you know, expository dialogue, you know, in the operatic style, I find took some getting used to for me. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I can't speak to it as like an evolution of Cronenberg because I think the effects are different in his version. You know, the guy in the uh, the German production has the ponytail. It looks a little bit like the uh, Travolta meme from uh, Pulp Fiction at points. <laughs> Who wanders around trying to find something. Yes, and he only gets down to being topless when he goes through the telepod. So it's like a like a slightly out of shape Chippendales routine. You know, it was in- interesting inter- interesting to see that kind of story done on the stage, um, and to see like the ways they try to get around. You know, what is like a very sparse kind of environment. Like you know, they use a lot of um, like muted color palette and like space space between actors to um, like you know when when they're kind of having tension, like they're they're positioned like on di- distinct points of the stage. Like there's, there's things to find interesting in it, but I, I, I couldn't, I don't know how much I can talk to just how it, if it's Cronenberg evolving his ideas from the film, other than just that it adopts, you know, with David Huang, you know, wrote it, the guy that wrote and butterfly and like it. So it adopts like a different structure with the um, c- kind of closer to the uh, original story, um, you know, as far as like being a woman's recounting of it. I, I did notice that the, um, the one recurring thing that in the Pogue script, the Cronenberg, and then the uh, the opera is like that that splash of blood to indicate the failure of the of the teleportation of the animal. Like that's something that seems to be like like that's one of the first things that really jumps out from the Pogue script to the Cronenberg script is that is that flash of blood to indicate failure. It's just it, it it's just a very succinct, horrifying way to to to, to put that point across. I can't remember who mentioned it, but somebody did bring up that Cronenberg has been talking about doing some sort of revisitation other than the opera to this. And 
I can find mentions of him talking about wanting to do that, but not what the actual project is, which is smart. You know, you wouldn't want to you know, go out there and show all your cards. But my God, would I enjoy seeing what he has to say about this, you know, 33 years later. I know. I would love that. I mean, there's even a part of me that wants some kind of story where some organization comes along after the events of the fly and collects Brundlefly's DNA so that we also can have Jeff Goldblum back. That would be good if he had the rapid aging thing and then he would just, yeah, age him up to where he's at now. Exactly. Or if he had like identical twin that we never met in the first movie. Because we know <laughs> nothing about him. I mean, other than that weird, like, F-32 research, we don't know anything about this guy before the movie begins, where his family's at, nothing, which is ideal for this film to keep everyone in these little pockets and not have anyone else in the world. But, yeah, that opens up the whole galaxy for us to explore. I mean, he does something similar in Rabid with Rose, where we don't know anything about her. And I think a director more keen on exposition would have said, okay, she's in a motorcycle accident. Let's give her, you know, memory loss or something. But it's, I feel like a pretty common thing that he does where he doesn't feel the need to give you much context about who somebody is in, because I think part of the story is about an identity struggle. The Gina Davis character also doesn't seem to have very many friends or family, like, which is why she keeps going back to, to, you know, like a stalkerish ex-boyfriend, <laughs> you know, in times of crisis. Like, and I was thinking about like how many of the characters in Cronenberg's films are loners like that. Like they don't really have a lot of friends and family. And it, it makes it like more streamlined dramatically to just reduce it to just these few locations and these few characters. Like it, that, that's one thing that feels so different about the fly too, is there's so many people in it. And, you know, with a few exceptions, most of the scenes in the fly are just one or, you know, like two or three people at most. That's something that even shows up in his films with families. Like, the Brood or History of Violence or even Eastern Promises, it's a people who do have families, they still don't have what you would think of as a normal social network. They have like maybe two, maybe three family members. And there's this sort of weird insular quality where no one leaves the bubble, like either because they just socially they can't or they don't want to. It's, it's very strange. All right, guys, I'm going to wrap it up. Before we go, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Bill and Sam. Bill, what is the latest with you? I've uh, been taking a little bit of a break from supporting characters, uh, but I am working on uh, research for new episodes. Uh, you can hear my past episodes over at www.nowplayingnetwork.net. Uh, you can hear episodes both with yourself and Sam, uh, as well as Stephen Thrower, Peter Biskind, Adrian Martin, Eric Allen Hatch. Uh, a lot of people since last time, well, since, not since Body Double, but since, you know, last time we talked last year. Um, other than that, I've, uh, I wrote a few essays for an upcoming book on 1980s cult movies that is going to be edited by Kat Ellinger. Uh, and I might be working on some home video related thing that hasn't been announced yet, but yeah, that's what I'm working on right now. And Sam, how is the hardest working woman in Philadelphia? Pretty tired. I've been working on a book about uh, Cronenberg's film Rabid, which hopefully will be out later this year. And 
I last year wrote a book on the Fritz Lang film M, which should be out in the next couple months. And we will get to talk about that more when I come back for our upcoming episode, I think next month. I think you're right. And just doing stuff with Diabolique magazine and working on some home video releases and not sleeping very much. It doesn't sound like you have a lot of time for sleep. It's overrated. Well, thanks again, guys, for being on the show, and thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-booth.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode, as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. Six eyes, I got a garbage brain that's driving me insane. And I don't like the ride, so push the best inside. And either I won't care, cause either I don't scare. Cause I'm a reborn maggot using gym warfare.
discipline to attain it you know you read what others had done and you and you took the next step you didn't earn the knowledge for yourselves so you don't take any responsibility for it you stood on the shoulders of geniuses uh, to accomplish something as fast as you could and before you even knew what you had you you patented it and packaged it and slapped it on a plastic lunchbox and now you're selling it you're going to sell it well I, I don't think you're giving us our due credit Our scientists have done things which nobody's ever done before. Yeah, yeah, but your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. 
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.